to the Commander Theory Podcast. I'm Nick Beatman, and I'm here with my friend, Zach Mack. Hello, everybody. So we've gotten the full set of Ikoria in record time, so we're going to be going through the legendary creatures in the new set, as well as the cards that we think may be relevant in the main deck of Commander. I think we can go ahead and jump into it. We've got some great legendary creatures to start with. But before we do that, I want to give a brief shout-out to our Patreon page, if you head on over to patreon.com slash commander theory, you can support the show and get some sweet benefits for as little as $1 a month. If you're not ready to support the show yet, you can support us by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And with that, let's jump into the new mechanics. So what is the most innovative new mechanic that we've seen out of the set so far? So Companion is a new mechanic that is intended to bring commander-like gameplay into other formats so companion is a creature with a condition let me give you an example lutri the spell chaser is one blue red hybrid blue red hybrid for a three two legendary elemental otter it's got flash and when it enters the battlefield if you cast it you can copy target instant or sorcery spell you control and choose new targets for the copy its companion condition is that each non-land card in your starting deck has a different name and if you meet that condition, then you get to run Lutri outside the game, outside of your deck, outside of your 100 cards, but you'll have access to it and be able to cast it over the course of the game. Once you do, there's no way to get it back outside the game. It's just part of your deck at that point. And then at the end of the game, you just pull it out again. I bring up Lutri as an example because it's the only one we're not going to be talking about as a commander or how you would use yeah. it because it has been preemptively banned by the rules committee we actually are releasing another episode where we talk with charlotte sable of the commander advisory group to talk about the the rationale behind that preemptive banning so go ahead and check that out so one more thing too about companion just to kind of alleviate any confusion let's say you had a kiora behemoth beckoner brawl deck and you wanted to run a blue green companion but you don't want it to be a companion you don't want to meet the condition it could just be one of the cards in your 60 of that deck and if you wanted to you could play any of these companions in a deck of the colors that could run it you just can't do the companion thing you'll have to draw it and play it um, if you wanted to make one of these uh, guys your commander you could totally do that and you would not need to meet the condition of the companion because it's a commander and not your companion but most of them you'll see you'll want to do that on because typically the condition aligns with what the card is going to do the legal companion cards that we've seen so far start with gyruda doom of depths for hybrid blue black hybrid blue black for a 6-6 legendary demon kraken its companion condition is that your starting deck contains only cards with even converted mana costs, and when it enters the battlefield, each player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard. Put a creature card with an even converted mana cost from among those cards onto the battlefield under your control. So when we talk about these companions, we'll talk about them as a companion card, assuming you're, you're trying to meet the condition and run them as a companion to another commander, and then also on their own, how they, they stand up as the head of a deck. As a companion, 
What do you think of Garuda? I think this is one of the easier hoops to jump through. Um, you miss out on certain things like Soul Ring, but uh, you're going to still get a lot of good like kill spells and draw spells and mana ramp and things like that. So I think that as far as companion constraints go, this guy is pretty easy to align with. When you're doing the ETB trigger when you're milling four cards, you do have to put a creature with an even cost from those four cards. So it's not like you have like a six drop in your grave and then you have Giruda enter the battlefield and you can reanimate that six drop. You do have to pick something that you hit. So it is possible to whiff. Um, but that being said, it is just an ETB. So if you can flicker it, if you can bounce it, if you can sack it and reanimate it, you can get more value out of this guy. And it's just kind of always in your hand. That's kind of the strength of it. Is there a commander that you think that Garuda would be a particularly good companion for? Perhaps another Kraken? If you're milling everybody, then Rexiel would be pretty good. You're going to be running a lot of the four mana rocks with Rexiel anyway, just to be able to get to cast him, because he's so expensive in this color with no ramp. So you're probably going to be able to cast Garuda. That deck is all about playing another graveyard, so this matches up pretty well. What do you think about Garuda as a commander? This has the same problem that like ETB commanders have, where you're just going to be running the same suite of cards. Mm-hmm. You're going to be running your Conjurer's Closet and... Your Thassa um, Deep Dwelling. Yeah, just all of these same cards that just are going to flicker your guy repeatedly, cheaply. At least with this guy, you'll be able to reanimate some cool, even-costed guys. I think we can move on to the next companion. So this next one is Umori the Collector. It is two green-black, green-black for a 4-5 legendary ooze. It has companion, and its companion requirement is each non-land card in your starting deck shares a card type. As it enters the battlefield, you choose a card type, and spells you cast of the chosen type cost one less to cast. So one thing that's very important to note is your commander counts as being part of your starting deck. So you can only choose a card type that your commander is of. So basically your your options are limited to all creatures, all artifacts using say Reaper King, or all planeswalkers using Lord Windgrace. You could also do all enchantments using Farika, God of Affliction. This is a pretty significant restriction. Committing to a single heart card type is very, very difficult. It's going to make your deck a lot worse than than decks that don't put that restriction on themselves. Yeah, very true. I would not advise trying to run Umori as your companion. I think you're probably going to get stumped on by the people who actually can play the cards they need to get ahead. You're just being denied so many options. But as a commander, uh, Umori is is more interesting and more appealing. It's only a little bit unfortunate that uh, he came so soon after Nylea Keen-Eyed, because Nylea, we we spoke about her when we did our Theros Beyond Death set review. She leads into a combo deck. She offers a fairly similar reward. She makes it so that all your creatures cost one less to cast. The way that that helps you out is if you run a bunch of one CMC artifact creatures or creatures that just cost X, like Endless One, with Nylea, they, they're all free, and you're in green color identity, so you can run Guardian Project and Beast Whisperer and the Great Henge and all these different effects that draw you a card when you cast a creature spell. So your commander solves for mana, 
you have these other effects to solve for cards and you can just kind of burn through your deck casting a whole bunch of things and whatever figure out a win a way to win from there with umori he offers pretty much the same thing all you have to do is choose creatures if you like you can also choose artifacts because most of the those cards are artifact creatures and then you follow the same strategy getting access to black doesn't drastically change your game plan um you have access to tutors so you can find your your guardian project and be smiths for more consistently although that that wasn't too difficult with the nylea build it's just a slightly better version with a slightly more fragile commander because nylea of course is indestructible isn't a creature all the time and that makes her a lot less vulnerable to removal than umori yep all right, uh, moving on to the next companion. So this is Karuga the Macro Sage. Karuga is a 5-4 dinosaur hippo for three hybrid green-blue, hybrid green-blue. Uh, the companion condition is your starting deck contains only cards with converted mana cost three or greater and land cards. So only three or greater and lands, nothing else. When Karuga enters the battlefield, draw a card for each other permanent you control with converted mana cost 3 or greater. You do lose as a companion a decent amount of the cheap interaction and like early ramp that these colors give you because you have to start ramping on turn 3 in order to have your deck work at all to be able to cast 2 spells in a turn ever just to be able to catch up for your huge guys your big haymakers um so like barring like cycling there's a few cycling creatures that help out with this uh you're gonna need so much ramp so much ramp but i think this is just a good card if it's your commander do you want to get into that a little bit karuga the macro sage because he's in green he has access to a lot of really good ramp cards so for example overgrowth is really solid two and a green for an aura with enchant land whenever enchanted land is tapped for mana its controller adds an additional green green so that's a huge amount of ramp you also got access to plenty of mana rocks like worn power stone thran dynamo um uh, coalition relic so really the deck is a whole bunch of permanents that ramp you and then you build up your mana base really quickly cast Karuga draw a bunch of cards and you're you get to run a bunch of cheap interaction like you mentioned that you you wouldn't get to run if you were your companion so in my experience goldfishing the deck I found that it's it's very good at ramping it's uh very good at drawing a ton of cards because you know once you get Karuga down you can also blink him you can run clones to copy him, get, draw more cards. The only tricky part is just figuring out how to win the game. I put in Avenger and Craterhoof and Tooth and Nail and a couple things like that just to try to, to close it out once you have overwhelming mana and card advantage. But uh, that is one of the trickier things because the deck is so focused on just getting ahead on resources. Yeah, it it honestly looks really cool and like really fun. Yeah, so that list is going to be uh, linked in the episode description. You can go ahead and check that out. And at the bottom of that list, there's going to be a link to TCG Player if you'd like to support the show by purchasing the cards in it. This next guy is translated to Obosh the Burrower. Costs three hybrid black-red, hybrid black-red for a 3-5 Helian Horror. 
the condition for the companion is each non-land card in your starting deck must have an odd converted mana cost. Uh, and the reward for this is whenever a source you control with an odd converted mana cost deals any damage, double that damage instead. So replaces your damage with more damage. Um, there is some sick tech for this. And honestly, this actually is not nearly as much of a... Uh, drawback as I think Garuda is because you do have access to soul ring you do have access to like cheap kill spells a lot of things kind of aligned on the odd axis for you in black red which is very nice there are some very fun cards in this deck although not as many as I was expecting I, I found that um, once I got up to about 80 cards it was really hard closing the gap to 100 but there's a couple in here that are just wow amazing first thing that stuck out to me was Fire Covenant. Fire Covenant is one red-black for an instant. As an additional cost to cast it, you can pay X life, deal X damage, divide it as you choose among any number of target creatures. So with Obosh, that's doubled, and so you're paying X life and dealing XX damage. And honestly, I thought Fire Covenant was good at like what it normally does. To double the, the conversion rate for life to damage is, is quite powerful. Another really cool card... Uh, Repercussion. So Repercussion is one red-red for an enchantment. Whenever a creature is dealt damage, Repercussion deals that much damage to that creature's controller. So if you have Obosh out and Repercussion out and some way to deal damage to an opponent's creature, let's say you bolt their creature. Mm -hmm. uh, bolt gets doubled because of Obosh, and so the creature takes six. And then Repercussion triggers, and Repercussion deals 12 to your opponent. Those extra layers like that to, to give the damage an opportunity to double again are really powerful in these kinds of lists. Another card that I think is pretty hilarious is Heartless Hidetsugu. Three red-red for a 4-3 Legendary Ogre Shaman. You can tap it, and it deals damage to each player equal to half that player's life total rounded down. So if you happen to be at an odd life total and your opponents are at even life totals, and you have Obosh out. When you activate Heartless Hidetsugu, everyone dies but you. So pretty funny, great way to eliminate some of your opponents. Uh, other cool things, Stuffy Doll, another one of those like additional layer type things. Stuffy Doll is five cost artifact creature construct for a zero one. As it enters the battlefield, you choose a player. It's indestructible, and whenever Stuffy Doll is dealt damage, it deals that much damage to the chosen player. It can also tap to ping itself. So. If you have Stuffy Doll and Obosh out, and you bolt the Stuffy Doll, then Stuffy Doll takes six, and then it deals 12 damage to your opponent. So again, those additional layers, so good, so powerful. You really want to have as many of those as possible. Mm -hmm. That's kind of all it takes to really uh, lay into someone. Next up is Yorion Sky Nomad. Three white-blue, white-blue, so five mana, for a four-five legendary bird serpent. Its companion condition is, your starting deck contains at least 20 cards more than the minimum deck size. It has flying, and when it enters the battlefield, exile any number of other non-land permanents you own and control. Return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of the next end step. So it's worth noting that in Commander you cannot have more than 100 cards in your deck, so you're unable to meet the companion for this guy, so we're only going to be speaking about him as a commander rather than as a companion. Yorion as a commander basically is a more fair Brago. Brago gets these triggers every turn and 
it doesn't take long for the triggers to build up as like you just make sure he gets in there and you keep playing permanence. This is kind of like you build up this machine. So eventually the machine gets really out of hand as you flicker things that flicker Yorion and they keep coming back every other turn. But it takes a while to kind of get to the point where your opponents feel like they're getting completely demolished. You have to have kind of a board presence before you're really slamming Yorion down on the board. Ready to move on to the next commander? Yeah. Gigantha, the Wellspring. Four red-green for a 5-5 legendary elemental elk. Its companion condition is no card in your starting deck has more than one of the same mana symbol in its mana cost. And it taps for white, blue, black, red-green. This mana can't be spent to pay generic mana costs. Unlike all the other members of the cycle, it has a five-color identity, so that really limits who you're able to use as a companion. And this companion cost, depending on what you're trying to do, could be pretty detrimental. So for example, this cuts you off from a lot of the, the stronger counterspells. You can't run Force of Will, you can't run Counterspell, you can't run Mana Drain, you can't run Force of Negation. It also cuts you off from some pretty powerful draw engines. You can't use Ad Nauseam, you can't use Necropotence. It's a considerable restriction, but there are you know plenty of cards that don't have multiple mana symbols in its cost. What decks do you think would be most interested in Gigantha as a companion? The one that really comes to mind for me was Niv-Mizzet Reborn. I think that deck, you're trying to get the most off of that ETB trigger and trying to get all of these guild cards, like cards with two colors in their mana costs, and that kind of leads itself into this condition pretty well. Ramos Dragon Engine, even though this doesn't help cast Ramos necessarily, it does help you cast everything Ramos is doing and getting the engine kind of going, getting the like five counters on Ramos so that you can start generating mana and doing whatever you're trying to do with Ramos. You mentioned the slivers, so the, all of the legendary slivers, there's really just a few slivers that you miss out on. Um, most of the slivers have like one color in their cost. That just really means that you can just kind of slot this into a sliver deck, like put it next to it as the companion, uh, and get like a huge payoff from that five mana that you're getting from Gigantha. How about as a... A legendary creature how about as a commander itself what sort of strategies stick out to you as potential uses for Gigantha I really think a fist of suns kind of situation is probably uh, what I would end up doing like that I, I would um, this list I think would probably for me be like Joda but I'm not quite sure about that I think like capitalizing on getting five mana and spending five mana every turn is pretty powerful once it comes down to me this is, would kind of be like you'd get to play some big splashy things what what are you thinking about i definitely like the strategy of like tutoring up fist of suns tutoring up joda and i think you can combo off like if you're casting creatures off of your fist of suns or joda and you have like an intruder alarm or just some way to untap Gigantha. Okay, all right, all right I, I got an idea. So you have, like, Pemanzora freed from the reel, get your infinite mana, and then you have, like, some cards that filter. I'm thinking that one snake that's, like, pay green, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Oh, yeah, yeah. So then you can filter it through there, and the filtered, after you filter it, that mana can be spent on anything, and so you just need an outlet for your infinite mana at that point. 
something like that, perhaps. I think there's other cards like that that'll let you filter the mana into other colors and without restrictions. There's a few different ones that will let you do that. So it's not even like you're specifically out of luck if you lose one of the pieces. Yeah, so I think that would be the strategy I would go for is like try to turn him into infinite mana. If you have like a Thrashing Wumpus or a Pestilence or a Pyrohemia, you won't even need to use the filter. You can just use your infinite red and put infinite activations of Pyrohemia on the stack. And then if you have the most life, then you just win there. That's probably the best use of Gigantha. I think that the ability is so powerful, we're going to see that probably the most. I, I think the place we're going to actually like see Gigantha the most is as a companion for like Horde of Notions. <laughs> That's my guess is where Gigantha is going to come up. Like You do lose out on some of the better elementals, like Avenger of Zendikar, but I think like the appeal of seeing five colors and seeing an elemental elk is going to draw people into that play pattern pretty well, even if it's not necessarily the correct thing to do, because you do miss out on some of the best elementals doing that. Well, if you listeners are interested in seeing this combo list, we've built one, and we're going to have it linked in the episode description, so go ahead and check that out. All right, moving on to the next companion commander. This is Kahira the Orphan Guard. One hybrid green-white, hybrid green-white, so three mana for a 3-2 legendary cat beast. Its companion condition is each creature card in your starting deck is a cat, elemental, nightmare, dinosaur, or beast card. It has vigilance and each other creature you control that's a cat, elemental, nightmare, dinosaur, or beast gets plus one, plus one, and has vigilance. So as a companion, you're pretty limited in where you can run this guy. It's basically just tribal decks that are of one of the named tribes. That that points towards Arabo, Roar of the World. It points towards Horde of Notions and Gishath, Sun's Avatar. Those are the ones that are most likely to use it. I put it in my Arabo deck. I was only running four non-cat creatures, so it wasn't a huge cost to me to cut them from my deck in order to add this to my uh, companion slot. Did it seem like it was giving you a benefit? Like, did it seem like that was worth it? I think so. Odds being what they were, I wouldn't necessarily have drawn one of those four cards during an average game where I was definitely going to have Kahira as my eighth card in my opening hand. So I think that benefit outweighed the odds of like, oh, I guess I don't get access to Gaddock Teague now. So I, I think it's worth it in though if your list is already like highly specialized towards one of these tribes, it's probably going to do you some good. Although for Horde of Notions, I don't know, once you get into like five colors worth of non-elemental creatures that you're turning down, the cost becomes higher where, as opposed to just green-white. This seems like better in like a Gishath or like an Arabo deck more so than perhaps like a five color elementals list. So as a commander, I have done some tinkering and built the deck, and I was actually really surprised. I thought, just looking at the card, that it was going to be a very janky list that was trying to do five different tribes at once. We, we talk a lot on the show about how it's not great when you have to commit to multiple different things, multiple different tribes or card types or whatever, because then they're just really competing for deck space. But what I found was, just looking at the best say elementals or beasts the best creatures in green happen to be elementals and beasts with elementals you get um 
Bane of Progress, you get Avenger of Zendikar. With Beasts, you get Craterhoof Behemoth. So a lot of powerful cards just happen to be these creature types. And so the deck ended up looking surprisingly like just a green-white good stuff deck. The commander didn't really add a whole lot on top of that. Like plus one plus one is not a huge bonus. Outside of Earthcraft or Cryptolithrite, there's not a whole lot of ways to get value off of that. Yeah. But the fact that my deck was basically good stuff meant that it my, my commander didn't have to do a lot of heavy lifting. I still think that's kind of sad in some ways. <laughs> I guess let me ask you this question. Do you think that Kahira, like as a commander, is a unique deck? No, I, I don't think yeah. so. I, I think that like some of the card choices are a little strange. Like, you know, I'm running Hunting Cheetah, but I'm also running like Titania and, you know, all these typical green big guys. It, f- it kind of feels like there should be more tech for it because, like, it's such a weird assortment of creature types, but uh can totally see, like, looking at the deck list, like, what kind of ends up happening a lot of the time. <laughs> you just kind of, like, crater hoof. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it for you. All right, uh, ready to move on to the next commander? Yeah. Okay, this is Luris of the Dream Den. One hybrid white-black, hybrid white-black, so three mana for a 3-2 Legendary Cat Nightmare. Its companion condition is, each permanent card in your starting deck has converted mana cost 2 or less. It has lifelink, and during each of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost 2 or less from your graveyard. So what do you think about this as a companion? So you do still get access to, like, wraths and some pretty powerful, like, sorceries and instants in these colors, and I actually don't think you miss out on too much good stuff like you're not going to be able to run like your ashen rider but you can run a bunch of other stuff you get a bunch of good sack outlets you get a bunch of card draw engines still in the form of like creatures and like recurrable things uh, that you get to bring back with Luris once Luris is on the battlefield so i think like you actually do get a pretty good assortment of value off of Luris. The problem is your commander has to be 2 CMC or less as well, because they're permanent in your deck, technically. That really limits (laughs) your choices. In terms of commanders that are 2 CMC or less and have at least white-black in their color identity, you're just limited to Ailey, Eternal Pilgrim, and Karlov of the Ghost Council. Of those, I think that Karlov aligns better with what Luris is trying to do. A lot of the most important cards in Karlov are things like Soul Warden, Soul's Attendant, uh, and similar effects, which tend to be really cheap. You won't get everything that that matters to Karlov, but you'll get a lot of the most important ones if you uh, keep with this Luris restriction. I've got a a Karlov list that uses Luris as the companion, so you guys can check that out if you're interested in it. As a commander... It actually worked pretty well. I I built a list and did some testing. I mean, as a commander, you don't have to abide by his restrictions, so you can run your Necropotence or whatever more expensive permanents you want to fit in there. But there's a lot of things that just, if you're casting them every turn, can really grind the board to a halt. So, like, some decks can't easily deal with Kami of False Hope getting recurred every turn. Kami of False Hope is a single white mana for a 1-1 spirit. You can sacrifice it to prevent all combat damage this turn recasting that out of your graveyard you're able to protect yourself pretty effectively another thing that worked pretty well was planar collapse which is one in a white for an enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep 
If there are seven or more creatures on the battlefield, destroy all creatures, they can't be regenerated. So a recurring wrath that just happens every single upkeep is really going to discourage people from committing more cards to the board. So you only have to do it once or twice before your opponents learn the lesson and then just stop casting creatures. And then from there you're able to, to do your controlling things, build up your board with other types of cards, and just not have to worry about protecting your life total as much. Kind of in the same vein as like Kami of False Hope, you can get like a Children of Corliss multiple times, which is like a 1-1 one, one for 1 white, and you can sack it to gain back all the life you've lost in a turn. But this is additive, so like if you start with a Children of Corliss and pay a bunch of life to something, and then sack it, and then get it back with Luris, and then sack it, you like gain back double the life, which is a lot of value on like a 1-drop. Uh, I was going to say Martyr of Sands. A single white mana for a 1-1. You can pay one and reveal X white cards from your hand and sacrifice it to gain three times X life. So if you got a full grip of white cards, you can gain 21 life per turn. And of course you can recast it. And uh, that is also pretty effective at maintaining your life total and making it so that you can pay life to things like your Necropotence or, or whatever else. I was so excited about Sorin Vengeful Bloodlord when it was printed in War of the Spark that I, I built a deck around it, and now they they gave me something extremely similar, and I'm likely just to port that deck over to Luris. They said that they're trying to keep certain like deck archetypes alive in Brawl. I'm wondering if Luris is supposed to be the replacement for Sorin when Sorin rotates out. I would say that in a lot of ways Luris is, is better <laughs> than oh, Sorin. Yeah. Or, or not yeah. having to worry about it getting attacked and having it be cheaper, recurring other permanent types. All of these are huge benefits. Zerda the Dawn Waker. One hybrid red-white, hybrid red-white. So three mana for a 3-3 three, three legendary elemental fox. Its companion condition is each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability. Abilities you activate that aren't mana abilities cost two less to activate. This effect can't reduce the mana in that cost to less than one mana. It also has one tap. Target creature can't block this turn. What do you think about this as a companion? As a companion, the first thing is you're limited to your commander. So your commander has to have an activated ability. And like there are commanders with a minimum of like red-white or red-white X that have pretty decent activated abilities. This helps them a lot, though. You probably are going to feel restricted by the companion hoop, even if this is helping your commander out in like a pretty big way. Only having permanence with activated abilities is kind of a big ask a lot of the time. At the same time, like the benefit is so strong. Commanders that would want Zerda as a companion, my first thought was Merith, Will of the Wild. It's green, white, red. Uh, enters with counter is equal to the CMC that you just spent to cast it, and you can pay X and remove X counters to either like deal X damage to a creature, make an XX elemental, or put X counters on another target creature, and X can't be zero. You basically get this huge discount on that. You pay one, make a 3-3, three, three, or deal three to something. It's pretty good. Brea, Ethereum's Shaper, artifact-based. A lot of artifacts have activated abilities, so like it feels like the companion restriction isn't as bad, I guess, in that list as it could be in others. And then there's like other ones like Mile of the Anima, but you're missing out on some really good beef 
if you're building into this condition with mile because just because you're paying four to look at the top six instead doesn't mean that making your debt quality worse is worth it i think but there's some other lists where it's really good yeah zakama primal calamity seems like a very powerful commander to use this as a um for those who aren't familiar with it zakama is six red green white for a nine nine legendary elder dinosaur it has vigilance reach and trample when it enters the battlefield, if you cast it, untap all lands you control. It has two in a red. Zakama deals three damage to target creature. Two in a green, destroy target artifact or enchantment. And two in a white, you gain three life. So if you have uh, Zerda on the battlefield and Zakama, you can really efficiently use your mana to control the board. Any other mm-hmm. legends that can make use of Zerda pretty well? Kenrith, Returned King. Training Grounds is very, very good. I would say even like integral to that deck in some ways, especially if you're going to win with the reanimation combo. Just having a Training Grounds as the eighth card in your hand, that seems pretty good, and it seems like you don't necessarily miss out on too much building around the restriction, just because like a lot of that deck is interaction a lot of the time. It's mana production. It's creatures that sack themselves to make mana, which is in itself an activated ability. So you're really not missing out on too much if you build into Kenrith with Zerda as a companion. Let's talk about Zerda as a commander. I was very excited to see this card. It seems like a very unique Boros commander. It's definitely not combat focused. It helps you build into a completely different game plan than the vast majority of Boros commanders. And I'd be remiss if I didn't start by talking about the combo potential. There's two cards in particular that combo off with Zerda very effectively, and those are Basalt Monolith and Grim Monolith. So Basalt Monolith is a three cost artifact. It taps for three colorless mana, and you can pay three to untap it, and it doesn't untap during your untap step. So with Zerda, the untap ability costs two less. It costs one to untap and taps for three, and boom, infinite mana. Grim Monolith, very similar, taps for three colorless, untaps for four, but with Zerda it only costs two to untap. So these are the two keys to making infinite mana in Zerda. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to assemble the combo with Zerda because you're limited by your color identity. You really only have access to things like Enlightened Tutor, Gamble. There's just not a whole lot of ways to find your Grim Monolith or your Basalt Monolith in most games. What I've taken to doing with my list is relying on a lot of rummaging effects. So there's a couple creatures that have activated abilities that let you rummage repeatedly. So if you have like an Oread of Mountains Blaze, which has two red, discard a card, draw a card. Well, with Zerda out, it's just pay red, rummage. If you have that in Zerda on the battlefield for even just like a turn or two, you're churning through a dozen cards in your library. And if you don't find your combo piece you may find one of the few tutors that'll get you to that combo piece. There's a few versions of that. Merchant of the Veil does the same thing, basically. Just it becomes red, discard a card, draw a card. I do think that this list is very, very powerful just because you can just win out of nowhere. Yeah, initially I was leaning a lot more on token generation because there's a fair number of cards that are like, you know, pay three or four mana, generate a token, and I'm like, oh, well, if I'm only paying like a single mana... To make a 1-1, that's, that's pretty good. I can go from there. 
but really like the combo plan happens quickly enough that it just kind of overwhelmed other lines to victory and I think that focusing on that is probably the best strategy with Zerda. Moving on to the next commander, we are out of companions to talk about and so we're, we're moving into the legendary creatures. Alright, the next legendary creature is Winota, Joiner of Forces. Two red-white for a 4-4 legendary human warrior. Whenever a non-human creature you control attacks, look at the top six cards of your library. You may put a human creature card from among them onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. It gains indestructible until end of turn. Put the rest of the cards on the bottom of your library in a random order. I was initially a little bit skeptical of this card. As I mentioned earlier, I don't like committing to multiple card types in the same deck because, you know, they fight for space. But there was a surprising number of, like, humans that enter the battlefield and generate tokens. It was easier than I was expecting to get this to work. And boy howdy does it work. There are <laughs> some extremely uh, strong things you can do. Just curving uh, a Hordling Outburst or a Spectral Procession into Winota on turn 4 means that you're getting three triggers putting the best humans onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. And there are some some very good humans out there. Some cards I was always happy to see were Lena, Selfless Champion, four white-white for a 3-3 legendary human knight. When she enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 white soldier creature token for each non-token creature you control, and you can sacrifice her to give creatures with power less than Lena's power indestructible until end of turn. So not only does she come in and make more non-humans that can then trigger your commander on your next turn, but she also serves as a little bit of wrath protection, protecting all of your, your tokens and weenies. She won't protect uh, your commander, unfortunately, but you still get to maintain the bulk of your army. Another card yeah. that I was pretty happy to see is Captain of the Watch. So Captain of the Watch is four white-white for a 3-3 three, three human soldier. She has Vigilance. Other soldiers you control get plus one plus one and have vigilance, and when Captain of the Watch enters the battlefield, create three one one white soldier creature tokens. So another card that comes in creates a lot of non-humans to trigger your commander in the future, and she also gives you a buff on top of that. Yeah, I love how for years there were just all these things that just printed soldier tokens or like non-human tokens or whatever, and we were like, why? Why wouldn't they do this? And now all of a sudden there's a commander where like that's such a huge benefit <laughs> that these mm -hmm. things aren't these tribes. It's so funny. I really love that about this list. You get to play all these cards that make things that ostensibly were concepted as humans, but don't count as humans to the game. And it just makes the deck run so much better. Yeah, I was uh, really impressed with it in my testing. It is a bit vulnerable to board wipes naturally. It can be difficult to protect the token army, but the hits you're getting in, provided somebody doesn't have a wrath immediately following your, your big swing, it just completely uh, snowballs out of control. It seems really cool. I was kind of skeptical at first, too, when, when I saw this spoiled. It just seemed like another Boris attack commander, but it seems like a very efficient version of that now after kind of like talking about it, seeing what is actually possible with this. It actually seems way more fun than I gave it credit for. It looks really, really similar to Dipala, but yeah. it's just better in like every conceivable way. So Dipala, when she becomes tapped, you can pay X and then reveal the top X cards. 
So with Dapala, you have to spend mana. With Winota, it's free and set at six, which is a huge number. With Dapala, you get dwarfs and vehicles, like neither of which are particularly strong. With Winota, you get humans, where there's thousands to pick from. With Dapala, they go into your hand. With Winota, they go onto the battlefield, tapped and attacking. And let's give them indestructible to boot. This is really how you do card advantage in red-white. This is fantastic. Do you want to move on to the next one? Yes, I think we can. This is Kinnon, Vonder Prodigy, a 2-2 human druid for green-blue. Whenever you tap a non-land permanent for mana, add one mana of any type that permanent produced. Then has the activated ability 5 green-blue. Look at the top five cards of your library. You may put a non-human creature card from among them onto the battlefield. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I figured this was just kind of going to be good stuff, and I think it kind of does turn into good stuff. And again, we have another commander in the set that goes infinite with Basalt Monolith, mm-hmm. which is just, <laughs> that's pretty hilarious to me. But I actually do think this is cool. I think this is like more like a Simic mile of the anima but like better because she comes down on turn two she actually does something (laughs) instead of just like have this really clunky activated ability basically she gets to help you turn your mana dorks into cards by using this ability that honestly seven is not that much if you just have like a few land or elves or mana rocks on the battlefield it just gets crazy pretty quickly yeah there are a couple combos here in addition to the basalt monolith combo if you have a creature that taps for mana of any color and you put a Pemmin's Aura or a Freed from the Real on it, then that'll generate infinite mana of any color because your Birds of Paradise will tap for two blue, you spend one of it to untap it, you're back where you started but you generated blue and you can of course use that blue to untap it and generate other colors of mana. There's so many green creatures that tap for mana of any color that oh, really yeah. the, the limit is just how easily you're able to find your Freed from the Real or Pemmin's Aura. Other combo potential this is not so much a, an infinite combo but it's uh, a good synergy that i think is worth building around if you have top of library tutors then you can influence what kinnon is going to hit and so rather than like digging for value and spending seven mana and getting a lanoir elves you can put a blight steel on top or put a jingataxius on top some like really crushing type of card and hit it off a of kinnon and just overwhelm your opponents this list seems like it's going to be incredibly powerful. Yeah, I did a little bit of testing and was just really surprised with how quickly it was able to put together wins and, and generate tons of mana very early in the game. I do think that this is kind of a cooler direction to go for Simic than they've been going. Uh, this next card is Zalortha, Strength Incarnate. Three red-green for a 7-3 legendary creature dinosaur. It has Trample and lethal damage dealt to creatures you control is determined by their power rather than their toughness. Uh, What do you think of this card? Yeah, so this is opposite during the Siege Tower, or in a lot of ways, I would say very much opposite Arcades, the strategist. It's cool that this guy exists, but honestly, I think you're going to also have some things to say. There's not really a lot, actually, you can do with this guy when you dig in. Power is just kind of universally known as better than toughness so they kind of give it to you at the rate it deserves a lot of the time Mm -hmm. there's very few like four ones or like six ones that like come at a rate that you're happy about but also do something it's not like we're playing vanilla six sixes for four in a commander very often you know what i mean 
I think this is a cool concept. I think it's really cool this card exists. I do think we're going to see decks that build around this guy, but I really don't think that he's going to be like a powerhouse of the format or anything like that. The caveat, I think, with this guy is that like ball lightnings and things are a little bit harder to just like kill. There's certain hasty guys with low toughness that kind of the gimmick is that they're probably going to die and this guy makes them not. But there's surprisingly less than you think there would be. And all that really does is mean that if they do kill your commander, then your board is probably screwed. I'm really, really terrified of getting blown out where I attack with a bunch of X1s and then my opponent blocks with a bunch of tokens and then they kill my Zalortha like right before damage and then I I trade with a 1-1 human token. Yeah, that's no one wants that. I mean, the hoop here is run high-powered, low-toughness creatures, but the reward is just essentially like all your guys get plus 0, plus 5, or, or approximately, something like that. It's not going to save your guys from a Wrath of God, which is what an aggro deck is most afraid of, and it's not going to increase your clock. The one thing I can say about this guy is that you are going to be incentivized to play cards that you don't really want to play in other decks, but that's not... I don't think it's powerful enough to really put it anywhere in particular. The next commander we're going to be talking about is General Kudro of Dranith. One white-black for a 3-3 legendary human soldier. Other humans you control get plus one plus one. When General Kudro or another human enters the battlefield under your control... Exile target card from an opponent's graveyard, and you can pay two and sacrifice two humans to destroy target creature with power four or greater. This commander is a little bit contingent on cards we may not have seen yet. Because it's a a sacrifice outlet commander, he needs a lot of sack fodder, and unfortunately, prior to Aquaria, there have not been a lot of great human token generators. There have been some, but we really need more support for that in this set, it would also be nice to get self-recurring humans. We've gotten blood-soaked champion in uh, Cons of Tarkir, but since then there haven't been any humans that have been able to recur themselves from the graveyard. Like, sacrificing two humans is a big cost. I wouldn't want to be trading a lot of real cards in this way at, yeah. at a two-to-one ratio when I have multiple opponents. That's just not a great way to win a game of magic yeah, but you're gonna run out of steam real fast yeah but if there is a lot of good human token generation and we have seen some so far in Ikoria, then i think general kudro is gonna gain a lot of of power and it is of course nice that he has this free graveyard hate ability that's likely to be useful during many games of commander and of course he is a lord so he will increase your damage output a little bit so we have a list for him that's going to be posted in the episode description. So go ahead and check that out. This next guy, there's not really too much to say about him. I'm not. I don't think either of us are super into him. Um, this is Cheville, Cheville, Cheville. I like Cheville. Cheville, Bane of Monsters, a one-three human rogue for black green. So just two mana. He has Death Touch. At the beginning of your upkeep, if your opponents control no permanents with bounty counters on them. Put a bounty counter on target creature or planeswalker an opponent controls. Also has, whenever a permanent an opponent controls with a bounty counter on it dies, you gain three life and draw a card. So, play pattern, you wait for your turn to come around, you put a counter on a thing, you kill it, uh, you draw a card, then you wait for your next turn, put a counter on it, and kill it. 
this is a very interesting card because it's so similar to Mathis Fiendseeker. Um, Mathis is red, white, black for a 3-3 legendary creature vampire with menace. At the beginning of your end step, put a bounty counter on target creature and opponent controls. For as long as that creature has a bounty counter on it, it has, when this creature dies, each opponent draws a card and gains two life. So extremely similar card, only different in the details, such as like when the bounty counter is placed, exactly who benefits from it, and how many bounty counters can be on things at any given time. But it's it seems to me almost like a, a tacit admission that Mathis was a mistake. I don't understand why they would print another card that's so similar to the previous one unless unless there was something wrong with the previous iteration. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me necessarily. Uh, it's also just very slow. You do get value off of this. It's just a two-mana commander. And so like any creature that get, gets played after this, which I presume is most of them, you'll get to pick who gets a bounty counter and who you try to kill and stuff like that. But it that's so slow. Like the where there's not really an incentive to put anything in your deck besides like kill spells or things that blow up permanence. I would put in Thornbite Staff. It's an equipment that when you put it on a creature, gives it the ability to ping things, and then whenever a creature dies, you get to untap the equipped creature. So with a creature with death touch like Cheville, you get to pay two mana and kill a creature of your opponents. But this is very slow. I'm not super excited about it. The reward is not awesome. It's just a card after you wait a whole turn cycle mm -hmm. and expend a kill spell. Kind of low on Cheville. This next one, though, not so much. This next one I'm pretty high on. Yeah, this is an extremely powerful card. This is Riel the Everwise. One blue-red for a 0-3 legendary human wizard. Riel gets plus one plus O oh for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. Whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time each turn, draw that many cards. It's extremely powerful. If Riel survives unmolested, you can pretty much deck yourself within like three turns. All you need is just a bunch of wheel effects. If you got a wheel of fortune and you discard five cards, then you draw seven from the wheel and five from Riel. And if you're doing that one to two times a turn, every turn, you're you're going to run out of library. And, uh, and that's when Thassa's Oracle steps in. Some sweet tech, too, just in general for this deck. Forbid is very nuts. It's whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time on each turn. So if you got nothing better to do, you can just sit there and go like, nah, and pitch some cards and draw some cards and you still have a counter spell in your hand. Yeah, you, you just can... have cancel as an activated ability that it's you just, get to use once per turn. Just nuts. It's so good. And any of the burn spells that also discard cards, all of those are super good because normally you're getting your cards out of the fact that creatures died. But with Riel, she goes, no, it's cool. They died, but also here's your hand back. That mm -hmm. was great. Lion's Eye Diamond is insane in this deck. Oh my God, yeah. If you assume that the cards in your hand don't matter, which they don't, it's just a Black Lotus. The instant speed, discarding your hand and drawing that many cards are really important in this deck. Like You really want to be making sure that you're getting multiple Riel triggers in a round of turns. Cards like Talarian Winds, one in a blue for an instant, discard your hand, then draw them that many cards. Being able to Wheel of Fortune on your turn, then Talarian Winds on their turn is how you're going to get to the bottom of your library real fast. Yeah, very, very crazy. Just the effect stacks up so quickly. And then she just is huge. 
like that second to last turn you might just be able to just kill somebody <laughs> i found that cavalier of flame has been pretty awesome because not only when it enters can you discard any number of cards and draw that many cards but once you've discarded your entire deck you're gonna have close to 40 lands in your graveyard and then when cavalier dies then he'll deal that much damage to each opponent and that can be your win condition if for some reason you had to discard a Thassa's Oracle. There's a bunch of ways to win with this deck and it is awesome. And there is a deck list and you can check it out. And if you like it, you can purchase it with the TCG player link. That may bust your budget though, because I did put a bizarre bag down in this list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe not this one. But, but if you really want to support the show, we'll take those percentage points. Yeah, if you're if you're really, really looking to help out. At this point in time, we're going to talk about the Wedge Mutate Commanders that are in the set. So Mutate is a new mechanic in Ikoria Layer of Behemoths. It only goes on creatures. If you cast the creature for its Mutate cost, you get to put it over or under a non-human creature you own. Then you mutate into the creature, and I'm, I'm reading straight off of the reminder text here. You mutate into the creature on top, plus all abilities from under it. So essentially, you are choosing one creature to be the base and you'll get that power and toughness and then you are adding on the abilities from the creature underneath it so it's a very strange ability first time we've seen something like this outside of meld or i guess grusilda monster masher yeah grusilda i think is the only thing pretty similar to this except she also added power and toughness but it's basically the same thing as Griselda, where you like mash together two creatures, like the text boxes yeah. are both there and everything. Arguably, Bestow was kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was just by design. They made all the Bestow creatures give the same bonus as their power and toughness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A couple things to note about Mutate. If you mutate two creatures together and that unit dies, both of the cards get sent to whatever location. If your stack dies, the whole stack dies. If your guy gets bounced, the whole stack gets bounced. But we do have clarification from Eli Schifrin. He has stated that if your commander pile, mutate pile, dies, only the commander goes to the command zone. The rest will go to the graveyard like normal. Infect gets very good with these guys. That's another thing to note, that at bare minimum, putting any of these guys on an infect creature and just going to town is uh, is pretty strong so that's something to keep track of like i don't want to have to say that every single one of these guys that infect is pretty good i don't know is there any other notes we should say before we get into them so the first one we're going to be talking about is snapdax apex of the hunt one red white black for a three five legendary dinosaur cat nightmare it has double strike and mutates for two hybrid red black white white so five mana. Whenever this creature mutates, it deals four damage to target creature or planeswalker on opponent controls, and you gain four life. This looks to me like a Voltron commander. It's relatively cheap. Because you can mutate onto an existing creature, it essentially has haste. It has double strike. So it has a lot of the components you really care about with a Voltron commander. You can make the most use of his double strike if you put him on an infect creature. You just want to find some ways to to protect him and get him in although the the four damage helps to clear out blockers so that is a nice bonus there are a couple piece of tech that i want to just highlight really quickly i mm -hmm. really like adanto vanguard as a creature to mutate onto so adanto vanguard is one in a white for a one one vampire soldier as long as it's attacking it gets plus two plus oh and you can pay four life to make it indestructible until end of turn 
So when Snapdex mutates into this guy, he will gain his abilities. When he attacks, he'll be a 5-5 double striker, and you can pay for life to give Snapdex indestructible until end of turn. So that is a great way to buff up his power, make him hit harder, and protect him really well. There's a lot of other cool stuff. We are going to have a list in the episode description, so go ahead and check that out. I think Snapdex is the most straightforward, but I think a lot of the Voltron lists are going to look very different based on like what colors they're in and what like guys you can put them on. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Brakos is another mutate commander that is also kind of straightforward, but its different color identity completely changes like the, the types of creatures you're trying to mutate onto. The next mutate commander is Iluna, Apex of Wishes. Two green, blue, red for a 6-6 legendary beast elemental dinosaur. It mutates for three hybrid red-green, blue-blue. It has flying and trample. And whenever this creature mutates, exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a non-land permanent card. Put that card onto the battlefield or into your hand. So our friend Alex White came up with a very powerful and innovative use of Aluna. Typically when you see a commander that, you know, flips cards from the top of your library until you hit a card of some characteristic, the first thing you'll think of is like, well, is it possible, is it feasible to limit my deck so that I only have one of the chosen type? And in this color identity, green gives you the ability to ramp via spells rather than via permanence, and blue gives you the ability to, to draw cards via spells rather than permanence. And red lets you generate mana via spells rather than permanence. So you can meet a lot of your needs in terms of resource generation not using permanence. And so it is feasible to have just a single permanent in your deck that you expect to flip onto. And of course, like there's token generation in, in green and red especially that you can use to mutate your commander onto. You can also run lands that animate and turn into creatures or lands that generate tokens such as Colony Garden. So it's possible to, without actually having any creatures in your deck, still be able to mutate your commander onto something. So Alex, he thought that the one permanent you should run, the permanent that you're going to hit every single game, should be Thousand Year Storm. Thousand Year Storm, for those who aren't familiar with it, is four blue-red for an enchantment. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, Copy it for each other instant and sorcery spell you've cast before it this turn. You may choose new targets for the copies. So if you have all of these token generating spells, all these card draw spells, all these ramp spells, all these mana generating spells, those will help you like get the tokens you need to target to mutate Aluna onto. Those will help you ramp Aluna out a little bit earlier. Those will help refill your hand. But once you have Thousand Year Storm in play, they all become powerful like combo potential and win conditions because inner fire or like metamorphose are fine cards when you're just casting them once but when you're copying them three or four times it's just a fire hose of mana and from there it becomes very easy to win the game so i did a bit of gold fishing with this deck i highly recommend it it's going to be linked in the episode description go ahead and check it out but it's a, an extremely innovative fun combo list the next commander is Brakos, Apex of Forever. Two black, green, blue for a 6-6 legendary Nightmare Beast Elemental. It has mutate for two hybrid blue-black, green, green, so five mana. It has trample, 
and you may cast Brakos from your graveyard using its mutate ability. Similar to Snapdax, uh, I think this is likely to be a Voltron list, although its color identity gives us a couple other options. You don't necessarily have to mutate it onto an infected creature, although that's often the best thing to do. But there's a couple sweet pieces of tech that I, I think you really ought to be looking at when you're building this deck. So one of them is Needle Spectre. Needle Spectre is one black black for a 1-1 one, one with flying and wither. When it deals combat damage to a player, that player discards that many cards. So normally when you're hitting with Needle Spectre, it's just going to deal one, and they'll discard a card. But if you mutate Brockos onto it, you're hitting for six, they're basically discarding their hand. Other pieces of tech include Cephalid Constable, one blue-blue for a 1-1 oh, yes. Cephalid Wizard. When it deals combat damage to a player, return up to that many target permanents that player controls to their owner's hands. So if you're hitting for six with your, your Brockos Constable hybrid, you can bounce six permanents that that player controls. And note that it doesn't say non-land, so you can put all of their lands into their hand and that will likely knock them out of the game. Finally, I just want to point out Cold-Eyed Selkie, one hybrid green-blue, hybrid green-blue for a 1-1 Merfolk Rogue with Island Walk. When it deals combat damage to a player, you may draw that many cards. So hit for six, draw six. Because you're in green, you have access to some really strong pump effects. If you have Brakos on an infect creature, you're minimum hitting for six poison, and then you could Groundswell, you can Might of Old Krosa, you can Vines of Vastwood, you can Invigorate, and all of those are going to get you from 6 to 10 poison, and then boom, your opponent's out of the game. Really, really quickly. Yeah. So I think this is a very strong list. Also, the fact that you can just keep recasting from your graveyard, you don't really have to worry about commander tax, and you don't have to commit a lot of cards to the board. It's like, here's the thing I'm going to mutate onto. I put Brockus on it, I swing. If you kill it, okay, I just play one more card that makes him hit like a ton of bricks and try it again. So you don't have to commit a lot to the board. You can just keep doing your thing and eventually your opponent's going to succumb to it. This list actually seems like a blast. I guess this next one is Vadrock, Apex of Thunder, a uh, elemental dinosaur cat. Costs blue, red, white for a 3-3 flying first strike and has mutate of one white-blue hybrid, red-red, so a four cost to uh, mutate. Whenever this creature mutates, you may cast target non-creature card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. So the first thing to note about that is it doesn't exile whatever it is. So if it's an artifact, you get your artifact into play. If it was an instant, you just cast the instant, and it doesn't get exiled as if it had flashback or something like that. That's pretty cool. So there, there are some opportunities for repeated play patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that is a cool thing about it. There's one card we found that's really good with Vadrock. Second Chance seems pretty powerful here. Second Chance is two and a blue for an enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, if you have five or less life, you sacrifice Second Chance and take an extra turn after this one. So... Getting that to happen every turn is a little bit convoluted. You need like a cheap creature and a bounce engine. And then you just play the cheap creature, mutate Vadrak onto it, get your second chance back. But there are like a fair number of bounce engines, especially when you have access to blue and any creature can slot in for this. And you do also have access to some, some tutors for enchantments. 
So you could pull that together and it seems like a slightly more interesting line than just like getting value and playing Chaos Warp multiple times. This last one, this is Nethroi Apex of Death. Uh, two white, black, green for a 5-5 five, five cat nightmare beast. Mutates for four green, white, hybrid, black, black. Uh, has death touch, lifelink, and whenever this creature mutates, return any number of target creature cards with total power 10 or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Wow. That's, that's a lot of creatures. That's a lot of creatures. You really don't need to cast this guy more than once. As long as you built your deck correctly and as long as you planned for it. There's been a shift in R&D to move away from like star star abilities and go more towards like a zero zero with plus one plus one for each blank. So if you look at like Multani Yavumaya's avatar from Dominaria, a zero zero that gets plus one plus one for each land you control and each land in your graveyard. Multani is a perfect example. Like if you want to mutate onto Multani with this guy, you're going to have a huge Nithroi. And then if Multani is dead and you mutate Nethroi onto something else, you get a free, huge Multani, just a bunch of stuff like that. And that's probably the most fair thing you can do <laughs> with him. There's just so many combos that slot into this. There's so many zero power creatures. There's some gimmicky builds. We have a friend came up with one. Basically, the gimmick is you use Rat Colony. So you are playing basically a Rat Colony deck, and Rat Colony is two mana... 2-1 rat. You can have any number of them in your deck, and it gets plus 1 plus 0 for each other rat you control. You mutate Nithroi onto a rat. Uh, you have a bunch of rats in your graveyard. Just kind of out of nowhere, you are back in the game with a bunch of rats, and it's just a huge amount of power. You get 5 rats back, and each rat and Nethroi get plus 5, plus 5, so it's 45 damage? Pretty insane. And that could be going on to a rat you had in place, so you could immediately attack somebody with your Nithroi. And, and even if you don't go the rat colony route, you can run a lot of self-mill or ways to get specific creatures into your graveyard, like Buried Alive. And then like you mentioned earlier, Multani or Realm Seekers that is a 0-0 zero, zero, but enters the battlefield with a ton of plus one plus one counters. You just get a bunch of those guys, and suddenly you have an enormous amount of power out of nowhere and you beat face with that and it's really resilient to wraths to like spot removal because you really don't care if things die yeah you just cast your commander again yeah it's wonderful so this this one in particular um is a pretty spicy meatball out of the five that we've seen so very excited about that and do want to thank alex white clay for the help with the deck list and finding the cool gimmicks that is very awesome yadaro wandering monster Five red red for an 8-8 legendary dinosaur turtle. It has trample and haste and cycles for one red mana. When you cycle Yadaro Wandering Monster, shuffle it into your library from your graveyard. If you've cycled a card named Yadaro Wandering Monster four or more times this game, put it onto the battlefield from your graveyard instead. I mean, this is definitely not a commander card because you still have to cast it. You can't cycle from your command zone. You still have to cast your 8-8 Trample Haste for 7 the first time. So getting the cycle trigger is almost impossible to do. You could do it. You you could conceivably play it, bounce it, cycle it, and then somehow get it back and cycle it 
three more times and then all of a sudden you're getting a discount on your 8-8 trample haste but that's it's really really meant more for uh four of formats 60 card formats and kind of to be a splashy thing to do there so uh mm, yeah not feeling him too much yeah honestly this is so much work i almost wish that you would just win the game if you were to jump through this hoop because yeah. it's not impossible what's the name of that artifact that exiles your entire library Oh, leveler leveler would work i was also thinking about mirror of fate if you have mirror of fate then you could pretty much guarantee that you're hitting this guy off of your off of his own cycle but the way it is now that's not even worth it because you're just getting a discount on casting him after you've already cast him yeah uh don't think this is a card for commander this next guy you could definitely play as a commander so this is kogla the titan ape a seven six ape for three green 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 so six mana when kogla the titan ape enters the battlefield it fights up to one target creature you don't control when kogla attacks destroy target artifact or enchantment defending player controls and then one green return target human you control to its owner's hand kogla gains indestructible until end of turn and something to note about that is that it's not part of the cost it's part of the effect is bouncing the human yeah, we got another mono green beater. And we got a, a, this beater hits you and it blows stuff up and it kills a creature and it's mono green. A problem with this card is that most of these abilities are just reactive, like fighting your opponent's creatures, destroying artifacts and enchantments. That's really dependent on what your opponent is doing. There's plenty of times where it may not be good and it's not that easy to build around. The last ability is more promising. It it sort of implies that, oh, maybe there's some like humans with really good ETB triggers that I could keep farming. And the problem is I like looked through all the humans with ETB triggers in mono green and there's like one really good one and one decent one. And then it's just nothing. Yeah. So you get to keep bouncing eternal witness every turn, which is pretty sick. And then you get to like foul emissary and impulse for creatures a bunch of times. And then yeah, else. it drops off pretty quickly after that. Yeah. So if you want a cheap beater, here's your commander. Now we got planeswalkers and we'll get into the main deck cards. The first one is Luca Coppercoat Outcast. Five mana, three red red for a five loyalty planeswalker Luca. Plus one. Exile the top three cards of your library. Creature cards exiled this way again. You may cast this card from exile as long as you control Luca Planeswalker. Minus two. Exile target creature you control, then reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature card with a higher CMC. Put that card onto the battlefield and the rest onto the bottom of your library in a random order. Then seven. Each creature you control deals damage equal to its power to each opponent. So, plus one, draw cards effectively. Uh, minus two, polymorph, but gooder. Minus seven, deal a bunch of damage, maybe win? I don't know. Hopefully. I'm not really feeling this guy. I mean, the draw is good, but I would expect a five mana commander to draw me some cards. Yeah, the density of creatures has to be really, really high in order to consistently hit off of that. I'm just going to go ahead and pull up the hypergeometric calculator really quick. Let's say you want an 80% chance to hit one or more cards off of Luka. You'd need to be running 41 creatures in your deck. There aren't that many red decks that are going to be 
running that high density of creatures that would also want the rest of what Luca has going on. Like maybe goblin decks might run that many, but I also don't think they'd be interested in like a five mana polymorphin planeswalker because they're just going to polymorph into another goblin. Yeah. Admittedly a goblin that costs more. So that's, that's cool. Yeah. There's, there'll probably be a deck someday that's like, yeah, I really want to guarantee I polymorph into this thing. And Luca is just a five mana polymorph instead of a four mana polymorph. He might be interesting. Like as a brawler, you could guarantee what he hits. You just need to run token generation or man lands or something. So that could be cool. Yeah. Interesting guy. Not super excited to play with him. The next planeswalker is Vivian monsters advocate. Five mana, three green green for a three loyalty planeswalker Vivian. Two static abilities. You may look at the top card of your library at any time, and you may cast creature spells from the top of your library. Plus one, create a 3-3 green beast creature token. Put your choice of a vigilance counter, reach counter, or trample counter on it. And then minus two, when you cast your next creature spell this turn, search your library for a creature card with lesser converted mana cost, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Um... So there's actually a ton of value going on right here. This one of the mechanics that we haven't talked about yet in the set is uh, ability counters. So now you can have a counter that gives your creature trample or reach or vigilance or death touch or hexproof or indestructible. Any of the keywords. So Vivian does that here. You get a 3-3 with a keyword of your choice. That's pretty good. You also get to cast creatures off the top of your library, just essentially giving all the creatures that you would cast off the top of your library draw a card. This is like kind of getting to the point where I would play this in Commander. I think there's like just enough value. I don't know what decks in particular I would put this in, but I, I could see myself playing this in a deck. I really, really like looking at the top card of my library. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on there. I think it's very easy to manipulate that so that it comes to your advantage just in the timing of shuffle effects like in mono green you have so many ways to pull lands out of your library and shuffle or search for creatures out of your library and shuffle i think there's a lot you can do to make use of that information in mono green and then of course this card does some other stuff too whatever you can eke so much value out of this one card that i do actually think it's worth it to run uh, in a fair number of lists i think we can move on to the new planeswalker We've got Narset of the Ancient Way. This is one blue, red, white for a four loyalty legendary planeswalker, Narset. She has plus one, you gain two life. Add blue, red, or white. Spend this mana only to cast a non-creature spell. She has minus two. Draw a card, then you may discard a card. When you discard a non-land card this way, Narset of the Ancient Way deals damage equal to that card's converted mana cost to target creature or planeswalker. She also has minus six. You get an emblem with, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, this emblem deals two damage to any target. What do you think about this Planeswalker? This is a very good Planeswalker for standard. The emblem is like the perfect example of that. Deal two damage to any target whenever you cast a non-creature spell. That doesn't win you the game in Commander. That's like, if, if your opponents have 120 life, like that's a, that's a lot of spells that you got to cast. So this is definitely geared towards uh, standard, and uh, I'm not really looking to see it in Commander. I definitely agree with you. I don't think that this meets the criteria for 
a planeswalker to be effective in commander she doesn't do anything extremely powerful the turn she comes down and she doesn't protect herself very effectively so i don't think this is a commander planeswalker finally we are moving on to the main deck cards we're going to try to move through these quickly we understand that this episode is running a little long first up we have mysterious egg a single mana for a zero two creature egg whenever this creature mutates put a plus one plus one counter on it so this is an egg which means it's probably worth running in Atlapalani. There are some builds of that deck that run a bunch of changelings and the few existing eggs and then just flip through them and uh, can combo off that way. So I think this is a, a great addition to that deck. Also to note, it is just colorless. They don't do that very often, so that's cool. Getting into some white cards. This is Luminous Broodmoth, a 3-4 flying insect for 2 and 2 white. Whenever a creature you control without flying dies, return it to the battlefield under its owner's control with a flying counter on it. The funny term our friend Alex gave us was unflying instead of undying. This is just really good. If you have Mothra with any persist or undying creature, you can sack them infinitely because one of the triggers can be the Broodmoth and then the other trigger can be persist. So you can go like, okay, now it died and it comes back with a minus one, minus one counter. Okay, well now it died and it comes back with flying. Okay, now it died and it comes back to the minus one, minus one counter. So you can kind of cycle between those things. There is a, a little bit of a problem with that in regards to mono white, though, where there's... You uh, could run this in a in a, like a green white deck. You could. You get way, way, way more value out of that. But mono white, I don't think, has any non-flying persist creatures that aren't hybrid mana. There's the manticore, lesser manticore from uh, Modern Horizons. Oh, yeah, that's true. You do get lesser manticore. Oh, sorry, Lesser Masticor. I, I keep forgetting that those are two different creature types. Yeah, Lesser Masticor. But yeah, you, you definitely have to choose a color identity that is a little bit expansive if you want to make use of this card. Uh, another combo piece that works well with it is Solemnity, which is counters can't be put on artifact, creatures, enchantments, or lands. So that's another way to make it work, although that may be more difficult to assemble than just clearing the low bar of persist slash undying creature plus any sack outlet it's an interesting card and i think there are some sack outlet oriented decks out there that might be able to make use of it i definitely think so fight as one is the next card we're going to be talking about it is a single white mana for an instant choose one or both target human creature you control gets plus one plus one and gains indestructible until end of turn or target non-human creature you control gets plus one plus one and gains indestructible until end of turn this is a pretty natural fit for Feather the Redeemed. Feather, who all of you are probably familiar with, is able to return instant sorcery spells that target creature you control to your hand after you cast them. So Feather naturally runs a lot of cards like this, and so this just slots into that pretty easily, and it's also able to target your human creatures you control. So you can potentially like protect Feather with the non-human half, and then target like a heroic creature you have with the other half. So I, I like that it has that added utility, and I think it's an easy fit for that deck. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And actually, like the one mana indestructible ones are like few and far between. Something that I've noticed is that little pump, the plus one plus one, actually does a lot because a lot of the time you're winning with double strike or something like that. And just that one extra point of damage, like you respond to a kill spell by giving it plus one plus one and indestructible and all of a sudden you're killing them as opposed to uh, gravely wounding them so I, i'm excited for playing this in feather 
moving on to a quick one. Savai Sabretooth is one and a white for a 3-1 cat. That's it. Yeah, it's a cat. So Rabo's probably into this. Yeah, it's cheap. It has high power. It'll attack for six on turn three. It probably would be better than some of the more expensive cats and mm-hmm. just help keep your curve low so you can consistently get those Arabo triggers. Next, we have Dranith Magistrate. One in a white for a 1-3 human wizard. Your opponents can't cast spells from anywhere other than their hands. That stops your opponents from casting their commanders. So that could be really good. Just get him down and your opponents are locked out from their commanders until he dies. Moving on to the next guy. This is Valiant Rescuer. A 3-1 human soldier for one in a white. Whenever you cycle another card for the first time each turn, create a 1-1 white human soldier creature token. And he has cycling two. I wouldn't run this guy in any of the human tribal builds. There just aren't that many cards out there that naturally cycle that you could get a critical mass of in a just a random list. But there is a commander that I think could make use of this guy. That is Gavi Nestwarden. Gavi is, we'll talk about her more once we do the C20 episode, but she rewards you for cycling uh, each turn and for drawing multiple cards each turn. And of course, the reward she generates is a 2-2 cat dinosaur token with valiant rescuer it's rewarding you for doing something you were already planning on doing in a gavi deck which is cycling cards and it gives you a reward that aligns with what gavi rewards you so the coat of arms and the shared animosity all those things that work well naturally with gavi are going to work well with valiant rescuer as well so i think it's a, a perfect card for that deck and of course it has cycling itself if it's ever not good you can just toss it The next card, we're entering the blue cards, is Reconnaissance Mission. Uh, This is two blue-blue for an enchantment. Whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, you may draw a card. It also has Cycling 2. But yeah, this is another Coastal Piracy. If you needed another by Nathasa, and you did. You you did Mm -hmm. need it. You wanted this. Um, This is the... This is great. This card is awesome. It's always going to be awesome. And it has cycling. So if it's not awesome, you can discard it and get something else. I'm a big fan of these types of effects. They have been extremely good in many decks. Most notably, I guess, Talrand and Kaikar. But they just work so well for so many commanders. And I'm really happy to see another one. I think these are awesome. All right. Next is another expensive blue enchantment. It is Shark Typhoon. Or Sharknado. Yeah, the Sharknado. Five and a blue for an enchantment. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create an XX blue shark creature token with flying, where X is that spell's converted mana cost. It cycles for X, one, and a blue. And when you cycle Shark Typhoon, create an XX blue shark creature token with flying. Well, what do you think about this card? This is fine. This is good. It's very expensive, but as soon as it comes down... Assuming it doesn't get blown up, you're going to have an army pretty quick. I think the easiest point of comparison for this card would be Metallurgic Summonings from Kaladesh. So Metallurgic Summonings is three blue-blue for an enchantment. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, create an XX colorless construct artifact creature token where X is that spell's converted mana cost. And then you can pay three blue-blue and exile Metallurgic Summonings to return all instants and sorcery cards from your graveyard to your hand. And you can only activate that ability if you have six or more artifacts. 
Metallurgic Summonings sees a lot of play in Taigam Ojutai Master because he is able to cast each instant sorcery multiple times, sees play in Baral, and sees play in Talrand, as well as some other uh, spell slinger commanders like Noyandar or Mizix of the Ismagnus. So relative to Metallurgic Summonings, it's a little bit more expensive, but the tokens are better because they have flying, and you're trading off the, the inability to return instant sorceries from your graveyard to your hand with the ability to cycle and the fact that it triggers off of more than just instants and sorceries. Yeah. So a little bit of pluses and minuses there. If you liked summonings, you'd probably like this too. Yeah. So the next card is a card called Keep Safe. It is a blue instant, one in a blue counter target spell that targets a permanent you control. Also draw a card. This is awesome, specifically in lists that keep spell costs lower, like Baral. Basically, you're, you're just countering a spell and drawing a card for very little investment, and that deck has lots of counter spells in it, mm-hmm. just because they're so much cheaper and better, and you're, you can just trade resources so much easier than your opponents can. The next card is Heartless Act. It is one and a black for an instant. Choose one. Destroy target creature with no counters on it, or remove up to three counters from target creature. You may have noticed that this card's mana cost and its ability to destroy creatures with pretty much no restriction puts it in the upper echelon of black removal spells. It's decidedly better than Doomblade, and I think it's about on the level of Go for the Throat. I think that this is going to kill what you need it to kill 90-something percent of the time. And then there are going to be weird cases where the remove three counters is going to kill the creature as well, like when it's a 0-0 with counters on it or something like Mm -hmm. that. So this instantly jumped up to like one of the best like two mana and black kill spells. Yeah, I think it's a, a very strong card, and I definitely plan to pick up a bunch for my black decks. The next card is Forbidden Friendship. One in a red for a sorcery. Create a 1-1 red dinosaur creature token with haste, and a 1-1 white human soldier creature token. It looks a lot like Krenko's Command, and I think... The decks that are running Cranko's Command but don't care about creature types are probably going to run this. So that mostly means like Zeta Hedron Grinder or Perforos God of the Forge or maybe like Grenzo Havoc Razor. All of those cards just want extra bodies on the battlefield and this is strictly better for decks that don't care about the goblin creature type. Next card is Shredded Sails. One in a red for an instant. Choose one. Destroy target artifact, or Shredded Sails deals 4 damage to target creature with flying, and it has cycling for 2. So this is the kind of cycling card I'd love to see. It's not only like a situational thing plus cycling, it's practically a charm. And pretty much all of these modes, when they're good, they're going to be good, and one of them is good no matter what. Yeah, at bare minimum, you it's another card. At bare minimum, it's another card, but then sometimes you're like, oh, cool, I can blow up your like combo piece, and sometimes you're like, oh, cool, I don't die to your commander. Yeah, in most games of commander, there's going to be some good artifact to blow up, and then in some games of commander, there's going to be good flying creatures, but you're always going to be happy to draw cards. I just think this is a extremely versatile spell, and I think it's the best red card in the set. This next card is Breach the Barrier. Two and a green for an instant. Exile up to three target enchantments. It has cycling for two. It seems good. Similar to Shredded Sails, this is a somewhat narrow card. When it's good, it's going to be very, very good. And when it's not good, it becomes another card. 
Yeah, it's going to do a lot of work when it's working. Migration path. This is three and a green for a sorcery. Search your library for up to two basic land cards, put them onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. It also has cycling for two. Does this remind you of anything? Yes, so you might remember a card called Explosive Vegetation. This is basically just that, but better. This is not the first time they've done that, but better. There's a bunch of four mana green sorceries that get you two lands. This is better than a decent amount of them. For your awareness, on EDH rec, Explosive Vegetation is in 19% of all decks it can possibly fit into, which translates to 28,000 decks. It's an extremely popular card, and this is a pure upgrade over it. Yeah, pretty much strictly better. So I see no reason why this will not just see adoption. That why, why not play Migration Path? Next up is Titanoth Rex. It is 7 green green for an 11-11 dinosaur beast with trample. It has cycling for 1 green, and when you cycle Titanoth Rex, put a trample counter on target creature you control. This is very silly, but Skullbriar keeps counters on him, and I think this would go into that deck. One of the problems with Skullbriar is that he gets big, but can't get in there very easily. These ability counters are going to change that. He'll be able to get Trample when you cycle, and cycle cheap, like two mana is pretty good to do that. I'm very excited to revisit Gishath once the set is through, because it is adding a lot of dinosaurs and I uh, want to see if we can potentially get rid of a lot of those weaker ones and get awesome crap. Yeah, if you can hit an 11-11 trample off of Gishath, you'll be pretty happy about that. Mm-hmm. Way happier than a vanilla 3-4 four for 4. Yeah. This next card is flipping sweet. Yes, this card is called Wilt. It is one in a green instant destroy target artifact or enchantment. Cycling 2. It's strictly better than Naturalize. They've printed a couple cards like that recently, first with Return to Nature. But I think what's notable about this card is that there's no reason it couldn't have been white. It's so completely unnecessary in green, but white is in desperate need of redundancy for Disenchant. There are many, many good versions of Naturalize. You've got Croson Grip if you want to avoid interaction. You've got Nature's Claim if you want something that's more mana efficient. You've got Return to Nature if you want the ability to hose graveyards. There's just many, many different versions of that effect in mono green. So if you want to get to a critical mass of instant speed, artifact, and jam and hate, you've got your pick of options. But white does not have nearly as many options. It's got Disenchant and now Heliod's Intervention. And beyond that, it starts to get real shallow in terms of the options, especially ones that don't foreshadow themselves, that don't give themselves away. Because, you know, there is Aura of Silence and Seal of Cleansing, but then your opponents can just play around them. So I'm, I'm really disappointed to see, like, Wilt come in and, you know, maybe ignored in favor of better options by a lot of green players, whereas White is starving for this exact thing, and it's within White's color pie to have this card exactly. At this point in time, I would like to see some stronger cycling cards in white. Next, uh, we've got a pair of cards. One is Proud Wild Bonder. Two hybrid red-green, hybrid red-green, so four mana, for a 4-3 human warrior. It has Trample, and creatures you control with Trample have, you may have this creature assign its combat damage as though it weren't blocked. In addition to that, we have another card, Quartz Forest Crusher. A 6-6 trampling uh, dinosaur beast for two red, red, green, so five mana. 
Whenever one or more creatures you control with trample, deal combat damage to a player, create an XX green dinosaur beast token with trample, where X is the damage dealt to that player. Your tramplers hit, and then you get a dinosaur, and that's really good. <laughs> that's that's good just as like a 6-6 six, six or 5. So what decks do you think these might see play in? The first one is one that uh, I've had for a long time is Stonebrow. Stonebrow is kind of a trample lord, a 4-4 four, four trampler for 5, 3 red-green. Uh, whenever a creature you control trample attacks, it gets plus 2, plus 2 until end of turn. Your whole deck is just going to be these trample creatures, so you're going to hit and you're going to get more trample creatures to deal more damage. And then the Proud Wild Bonder is going to make sure that they hit for full effect, basically. That's kind of the first place my mind went to thinking about that. Um, Surout Dragonclaw, there aren't many lists for him. He's not super popular, but does have trample. Uh, I do have friends who've made lists for him. Gives all your guys trample, and therefore these guys give them all unblockable and give you more tokens that are unblockable. Something to note, like keyword lords quote quote like that like that's where i would put these guys in and this set has a lot of keyword shenanigans going on with the counters and caring about abilities and stuff like that yeah there's another one we didn't mention because we didn't think there was a place for it but it it's another example of this phenomenon it's called labyrinth raptor Black, red for a 2-2 Nightmare Dinosaur with Menace. Whenever a creature you control with Menace becomes blocked, defending player sacrifices a creature blocking it. And you can pay black, red to give creatures you control with Menace plus one, plus oh until end of turn. There's not a deck specific for that card, but I, I think we're going to see more keyword lords like this, and it's worth keeping an eye out for them. Yeah, these are definitely tools that future decks can use. All right, the next card is General's Enforcer. It's white-black for a 2-3 human soldier. Legendary humans you control have indestructible. And two white-black, exile target card from a graveyard. If it was a creature card, create a 1-1 white human soldier creature token. So the first ability uh, looks a lot like Bastion Protector if your commander happens to be a human. Bastion Protector is 2 and a white for a 3-3 human soldier. Commander creatures you control get plus two, plus two, and have indestructible. So it's similar that it's like a, a first line of defense for your commander. The second ability, though, offers some human token generation for the human tribal commanders that we're seeing coming out of Ikoria and the C20 decks. So I think that this might find a place in them. It's useful at producing sack fodder for uh, gen the general and it's also good at producing potential beaters if you don't have anything else to do with your mana. So this next card is Dire Tactics. It is white-black for an instant. Exile target creature. If you don't control a human, you lose life equal to that creature's toughness. This is really good. Exiling a creature for two mana is not bad. We just got D-Spark last year. I don't know if I would take out D-Spark over this. And there's a lot of good removal in white black for one mana so not quite sure how to feel about it but it's a good card yeah i was like sort of counting out in my head the top spot removal spells in white black and i think this is like maybe seventh yeah <laughs> so if you're really want to shore up your spot removal and you're getting that far down the list i would put in dire tactics but not before i put in like Swords to Plowshares and Anguished Unmaking yeah. and Generous Gift and 
some other cards too. So it's a solid option, but it's definitely far down the list and also not significantly better than the next best spot removal spell in these colors. There's just an embarrassment of riches in white black in regards to removal. Next, we've got Fiend Artisan. This is hybrid black green, hybrid black green. So two mana for a one, one nightmare. It gets plus one plus one for each creature card in your graveyard. And it has X hybrid black green tap, sacrifice another creature, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost X or less, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Activate this ability only anytime you could cast a sorcery. So this is an extremely good creature. It does take a turn to get going. It reminds me a bit of Fauna Shaman in that respect, Mm -hmm. but it's a sack outlet. It's a great way to consistently get your best creatures. I I think it's a very, very strong card. Yeah. For two mana, I think that's really awesome. And two hybrid, which is also very good. And it eventually is just big. Like late game, this comes down as like a very large two drop. So there's just a lot going on here that's very nice. Yeah, I think this is potentially a new format staple. Um, Mm -hmm. The next card is Mythos of Snapdax. This is part of a cycle, but I don't think we're going to mention all of them here. Mythos of Snapdax is two white white for a sorcery. Each player chooses an artifact, a creature, an enchantment, and a planeswalker from among the non-land permanents they control, then sacrifices the rest. If Black Red was spent to cast this spell you choose the permanence for each player instead. So if you pay black, red, white, white, then you get to Tragic Arrogance kind of at a discount instead of five mana, it's four mana. I think this cycle is going to be a challenge for decks with budget mana bases. Paying exactly white, white, black, red can be really tough if you don't have a lot of rare lands in your mana base. And I think that for a lot of decks with who are going the budget route, they might just prefer to run tragic arrogance even if they are in mardu color identity yeah and that's i think that's totally reasonable the next card is death's oasis white black green for an enchantment whenever a non-token creature you control dies put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard then return a creature card with lesser converted mana cost than the creature that died from your graveyard to your hand you can also pay one and sacrifice death's oasis to gain life equal to the greatest converted mana cost among creatures you control where do you think this might fit into the format it's got a bit of a restrictive color identity yes so honestly this is probably going to go into your carador list carador is already recycling creatures pretty well this helps you out with that even more and then like maybe even kethis honestly not many places this isn't gonna be like going everywhere the next card seems a lot less narrow although it does have the same color identity this is Mythos of Nethroi, two and a black for an instant. Destroy target non-land permanent if it's a creature or if green-white was spent to cast this spell. This is a little bit strange wording. Basically, if you pay Obzon, so black, green, white, it's destroy target non-land permanent. And if you aren't able to pay that mana cost, then it's just destroy target creature. Or rather, non-land creature. That could matter. I definitely wouldn't run this over Anguished Unmaking or Beast Within or Generous Gift because all of them just have like a, a more convenient mana cost. This asks a good question. Like how many destroy target permanent effects at instant speed do you want in your deck? Would you go <laughs> Would you go to the fourth one? I don't know. I don't know if I would personally. I think the only reason I would play this card over the other ones is the art. Like if I was like, I want to play this 
cool old looking Sid McKinnon art. Yeah, Sid McKinnon really knocked it out of the park with this cycle. They're all cave painting style and they look really cool. But it's it's a good option. It is a good card. I would not begrudge you for running it. The Myth of Brakos. Two green green for a sorcery. If blue-black was used to cast this spell, search your library for a card and put it into your graveyard, then shuffle your library. Return up to two permanent cards from your graveyard to your hand. And tomb effects are great. Recursion is nice as well. The commander that I think would most benefit from the entomb effect doesn't care about the second effect. Yeah. Because like Muldrotha, yeah, she'd love a way to put specific cards into her graveyard, but she does not need any help getting permanence out of her graveyard. There's just so few commanders that like really want this card is going to be good like this card is going to be a good card in your list but like looking at what soul type commanders exist it's not really what any of them are looking yeah. for like you could get a zombie off of sidisi from the entomb but i don't think she really wants to pay four mana to get a couple creatures back to her hand definitely powerful i would say like tutoring for a card and then recurring a card is never bad the next cards we're going to talk about together one of them is from the uncommon cycle and one of them is a cool rare cunning night bonder is a 2-2 human rogue for blue black hybrid blue black hybrid they have flash and spells with flash you cast cost one less to cast and can't be countered that's pretty good the next card is slither wisp it is a 3-2 Elemental Nightmare for blue, black, black. It has flash. And whenever you cast another spell with flash, draw a card, and each opponent loses one life. These are both very strong. So I think that these are just in the wrong colors. Wizards recently moved flash from being mostly a blue-green thing to being a blue-black thing. And the problem is, like, black hasn't built up the equity Yet, they've printed a couple black cards with flash since then, but it really hasn't built it up the way that green had prior to the switch. So it's not something that exists in large numbers and doesn't have a lot of like powerful cards with flash. And there's not also like good rewards for flash in this color identity either. There's no commander out there in blue and black that either like grants flash so that all of your spells can trigger these cards and there's no commander that like rewards you for running flash. Right now there's just not really a place for these cards. Like you couldn't even run this in a deck that was already running like Leyline and Vidalcan Orrery and all those flash granters because most of those are worded so that they they don't actually give other cards flash. They just say you can cast beat cards as though they, as had, though they yeah. had flash. Yeah, correct. So I think these are cards to keep an eye on. I think that as more cards are printed that are black and have flash, these will likely get stronger and, and may find a, a deck to go into. But right now, the cards don't exist. The commander doesn't exist. We just can't really do anything with these. My prediction, unless they print like a another Brawl deck or Commander deck for a set that does like a blue-black flash thing, is that if they keep printing these cards, but like not printing a commander that necessarily works with them, is that we're going to see Weedwin, the Biting Gale, as a commander more often, because she just doesn't have anything to do. She has flash. She's a two blue-black for a 3-3 three, three flying flash fairy wizard, and she has blue-black pay one life return her to your hand there's really no reason to play her right now she doesn't do anything but my prediction is that if we keep seeing these cards seeing 
print and we don't see a commander built for them, that she's going to start to see more adoption as just like an enabler to like draw cards. Next card is Sonorous Halbonder. It is a 2-2 human warrior for one black-red hybrid, black-red hybrid. It has menace, and each creature you control with menace can't be blocked except by three or more creatures. Uh, so it just makes it even more menacier. The funny thing about this card is that it doesn't currently have a home anywhere, but there are several changes that if any one of them were to occur, it would become admitted into the format and have a place to go. Currently, uh, silver-bordered cards are not allowed, but if they were to be introduced to the format, then Grusilda Monster Masher grants menace to a subset of cards and could potentially make use of the Halibonder. If Planeswalkers become allowed to be used as commanders, then Angrath, Captain of Chaos, might want this. Angrath grants menace to all your creatures. And then if hybrid mana rules change, then Eroes, God of Victory, could run this card because Eroes has a red-white color identity and gives all of your creatures menace. So because this card is hybrid black-red, hybrid black-red, you could fit him into that deck if the hybrid rules were to change. So if there's any major shifts in what is allowed in Commander, this card could have a place, but right now there's not a place to put him. The next card is Offspring's Revenge. It is a, an enchantment. It costs two red, white, black. At the beginning of combat on your turn, exile target red, white, or black creature card from your graveyard. Create a token that's a copy of that card, except it's a 1-1. One, one. It gains haste until your next turn. This reminded me of Dawn of the Dead. I think when you look at Dawn of the Dead, the numbers on it are still pretty low. I think it only sees play in 500 decks about on EDH rec. Even though it does something that is more easily recurrable, you get the whole creature back instead of just a little baby version of the creature. It's in a more generous color identity. You can exactly. fit in more decks. Yeah. I'm not sure about the adoption of this card, but like there are some decks that might want this card. They protected you from getting back some Eldrazi and stuff like that. Even a 1-1 with Annihilate is pretty good. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just getting some pretty good value off of it. So you can't do that with this guy. But if you're getting back things in color, then like a lot of Kalia the Vast decks just have creatures that work no matter how big they are. Hellkite Tyrant still steals a board of artifacts when it hits them, even if it's a 1-1. Runescard Demon still tutors. That's one place I was thinking, just the color identity being so restrictive. Yeah, it's funny to see these extremely restrictive mana costs on this enchantment cycle because several of them are so, so powerful. And it's like, wow, if this were just costed slightly differently, if this had fewer colors, I could see a lot of decks it would fit into. But, you know, it's got like six choices now because it's a three color card. I think it's very interesting that this card followed immediately after Perforos Bronze-Blooded. Both of them are worded very, very carefully so that you cannot cheat big, hasty Eldrazi. The reason that's interesting to me is because with the return to Zendikar coming in the fall, Zendikar Rising, Wizards has made it very clear that this is a return to the, the very first Zendikar set and that the focus will not be on Eldrazi monsters annihilating everything. But the fact that we're getting these cards that explicitly leave out Eldrazi hints to me that there's still going to be some big Eldrazi boys 
when we return to Zendikar. It, it's not just going to be allies and quests and landfall. Moving on to the next card. So this is the, the first of the ultimatum cycle that we're going to be talking about. And it's a doozy. This is Ruinous Ultimatum. Red, red, white, 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 black, black. So seven mana for a sorcery. Destroy all non-land permanents your opponents control. It compares pretty favorably with uh, Violent Ultimatum, the oh, yeah. gen ultimatum from uh, Shards of Alara. This is so much better than a lot of the old ultimatums. Oh, yeah. Like, a lot of the old ultimatums don't do enough for the money's worth. This just blows a lot of those out of the water in regards to, like, card advantage and just what you're getting out of it. I think it's really powerful. I think I'm definitely going to run this if I'm in a Mardu list. Assuming it's a Mardu list that gets 2-7, I could definitely see, like, uh, Alesha decks not running this or or, uh, maybe something more low to the ground uh, staying away just because you don't need a 7-mana sorcery in your list. Mm -hmm. But if you do run this, I think it's just going to be good. I would definitely run this in a slower Mardu list. I'm thinking like Queen Marchesa or Teriel, yeah. Reckoner of Souls. I think those are happy to just get the massive card advantage that this card represents. The next ultimatum is Genesis Ultimatum. Green, green, blue, 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 red, red for a sorcery. Look at the top five cards of your library, put any number of permanent cards from among them onto the battlefield and the rest into your hand. Exile Genesis Ultimatum. This is five cards and a lot of mana too. I would probably consider running this maybe in Maelstrom Wanderer because it's like powerful to cascade into. Uh, maybe Riku of Two Reflections because it's powerful to copy. And then of course, as you're dropping in creatures off of it, you can copy those with Riku as well. Sirak Dragonclaw wouldn't turn up his nose at this. What other Yeah, he he's gonna get he's gonna have a higher hit rate on it. And honestly I would probably play it in Tet the Dreamer because it's basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. So in Tet, like when it hits you can pay two and a blue to exile a top card of your library and cast it for free. I'm fine with this card. I'm not gonna immediately put it into any decks, but I think that some people will be happy to see what happens. Yeah. I, I think that it's definitely not as impactful as Ruinous Ultimatum but it still beats the stuffing out of most of the original ultimatum cycle. The next ultimatum is Eerie Ultimatum. White, white, black, 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 green, green for a sorcery. Return any number of permanent cards with different names from your graveyard to the battlefield. I think it's unlikely that you're going to hit different names in Commander, so this will pretty much just pull every non-instant, non-sorcery card from your graveyard onto the battlefield, and to me that seems very, very powerful. Yeah, that I would definitely spend 7 mana to do this. Just the fact that it's permanent. Yeah, I really don't see many places where this will be bad, and I really don't see not wanting to run this in an Abzan list. Yeah, especially the lists that have a self-mill component. Carador, Ghost Chieftain, is already playing out of his graveyard. He already is likely to run some things that mill himself, like Hermit Druid or Mesmeric Orb, or have Sack Outlets to get things back into his graveyard. So I think it's a, a fantastic fit there. Maybe Teneb the Harvester, Kethis the Hidden Hand. All of those commanders are playing out of graveyards and would, would probably be very happy to run this card. And also uh, Cathril Aspect Warper and Tyam. They, and uh, and heck, you know, uh, also Nethroi. So these, these three new commanders coming from Ikoria and the C20 decks 
also care about your graveyard to an extent. So at this point, the majority of Obzon commanders want this card in their deck. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. The next ultimatum in the cycle is the Jeskai ultimatum. It is inspired ultimatum. Blue, blue, red, 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 white, white. Target player gains five life. Inspired ultimatum deals five damage to any target. Then you draw five cards. I mean, I think as far as the ultimatums go, this is the only dud we've hit so far, you know? Just putting it side by side with Genesis ultimatum, the teamer ultimatum. So both of them essentially draw you five cards, but Genesis ultimatum also puts all permanents among those cards onto the battlefield, whereas Inspired ultimatum just deals five and you gain five. So I I think that if you hit a bunch of big donks off of the teamer ultimatum, you could be generating 20 mana or more. And I think that just blows, you know, a larger lightning helix out of the water. If they really wanted this card to compete, they probably could have made all these sevens and make it so it only hits creatures and planeswalkers. They might have been worried about, like, if it's too much direct damage, then it literally just kills a player in 20 life formats. But these numbers are not appealing. This is not a sexy card. So this last ultimatum is Emergent Ultimatum. It is black, black, green, 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 blue, blue. Search your library for up to three monocolored cards with different names and exile them. An opponent chooses one of those cards. Shuffle that card into your library. You may cast the other cards without paying their mana costs, then exile Emergent Ultimatum. I do feel like it's pretty easy to just combo with this card. Yep. I feel like it's pretty easy to get a pile of three cards where y- you can't really pick the one that is not going to do the combo. <laughs> Other than that, I'm I'm not really sure like which of these Sultai commanders really want that. Maybe Yaruk is going to want something like that. It's pretty easy to combo when you're getting double ETBs. Kadena wouldn't want this card, but honestly, I think most of these Sultai commanders are not opposed to winning the game and <laughs> running the combo pieces that you would need in order to do that. Like if you hit a Tooth and Nail and an Expropriate and a Rise of the Dark Realms, there's so many boom booms in these colors that can win you the game on their own. And getting two of them is just very likely to, to lock up the game. I just Sultai just doesn't need too much more help. <laughs> But uh, as far as ultimatums go, this feels like an ultimatum. This will really blast your opponents. Yeah, definitely. So the next card is Mythos of Eluna. It is two blue-blue for a sorcery. Create a token that's a copy of target permanent. If red-green was spent to cast this spell, instead create a token that's a copy of that permanent, except the token has... When this permanent enters the battlefield, if it's a creature, it fights up to one target creature you don't control. So I really love that first line of text. Create a token that's a copy of target permanent, especially on a sorcery. That's really strong. That's really cool. We don't really have something that does this. Unfortunately, the color identity really restricts the decks that this can be played in. Like, I, I don't actually even necessarily know what Tamura deck is really looking for this. I'm not I sure. I was thinking, like, Riku of Two Reflections. In, mm-hmm. Oh, you're just getting multiple copies, yeah. Yeah, it's and also... Um, because you can choose new targets for the copies. Uh, it's In some situations, it'll be slightly better than a uh, uh, Clever Impersonator. Mm-hmm. So with Clever Impersonator, like, yeah, it'll enter the battlefield as a copy of a creature, but and then you can copy it, 
but it's just a second copy of the same creature off of Riku. Whereas with Mythos of Aluna, you can copy it and then potentially get copies of two different creatures, and of course you get the fight bonus on top. You aren't able to like reuse sorceries quite as easily as you're able to reuse a clever impersonator, but there's an argument for running it there. Although like Riku doesn't put a lot of restriction on your deck, so I don't know if Mythos is going to beat out all the good stuff available in those colors. The next card is Song of Creation. It is one green, blue, red for an enchantment. You may play an additional land on each of your turns. Whenever you cast a spell, draw two cards. At the beginning of your end step, discard your hand. This is really good. It's a heck of a card. There is always a chance that like, if you haven't just won, you whiff. You just don't draw a spell, and then you pitch, and you kind of just pass. I would run this in a deck that pretty much can't lose when it yeah. resolves. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking like an Animar deck. If if you have this in play and you're going off with Animar, I don't think you can lose. Yeah, definitely true. As someone who's played a lot of Animorphs, if you're drawing two cards per creature you cast, you typically don't ever whiff again. <laughs> you're pretty much good to go at that point. Yeah, kind of view this as an Underworld Breach where like, if you can't cast everything off of it, then it probably doesn't belong in your deck. Song of Creation is not a value card, it's a combo card. Yeah, exactly. You play this to close out the game. A very similar enchantment is Whirlwind of Thought. It is one blue, red, white for an enchantment. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, draw a card. This also seems like a powerful combo enabler. Yeah, (laughs) this definitely seems like a very strong card. I could see this seeing play in a lot of the Jeskai lists that exist currently. It's funny how it took a really long time for this card to get printed. (laughs) Yeah, there's been so many things out there that like cast a creature spell, draw a card, but uh, they've been a lot more conservative on this ability, and, and understandably so. There's so many mana generating spells that just win the game if you have enough of them and this on the battlefield. And I think that's kind of the key here is that the restrictive color identity means that it's only going to be played in like either Jeskai decks or five color lists for the most part. I think it's very powerful. I think this is probably going to see play in a lot of lists. Kaikar wins Fury is probably one of the high up ones. Uh, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you make a 1-1 white spirit and you can sacrifice a spirit to make a red. Basically turns a lot of your non-creature spells that make spirits and guys and things like that into those mana generating spells. So when you're not only getting spirits, but drawing a card off of all of that, it gets out of hand very quickly. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. thinking also Elsha of the Infinite would be a natural home for this card. Elsha says uh, you can look at the top card of your library at any time. You may cast the top card of your library if it's a non-creature, non-land card, and you may cast it as though it has flash. Between like being able to cast the top card of your library and drawing a card when you cast a non-creature spell, it seems like you are going to have trouble whiffing if you're casting your, your whole deck. Seems very strong there. You, you have experience with Elsha. Would you put it in that deck? I definitely would. Depends on if you're trying to combo with Sensei's Divining Top or not. Well, no, actually, I would just put it in. I would just make the combos work because it, I think this is just so powerful. You just end up drawing your whole deck so easily with that list, especially with this card out. Like, this card just makes that whole process go a lot faster. Looking at, like, the Jeskai options that exist, like, I think it really does just go into a lot of them. Because at bare minimum, even in, like, Shu Yun, you get double strike off of casting this, and then you kind of 
get your money back on all these combat tricks and stuff that you're casting to like one shot people mm -hmm. moving on to the next in the enchantment cycle titan's nest one black green blue for an enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep look at the top card of your library you may put that card into your graveyard also you can exile a card from your graveyard to add a colorless mana Spend this mana only to cast a colored spell without X in its mana cost. So essentially what this card is doing is giving your colored non-X spells delve. Which Sultai commanders do you think can best utilize that ability? Maybe like Damia. Damia typically like discards cards as a cost pretty easily and just refills her hand so quickly that you're turning all those discarded cards into mana for the next batch of things that you draw. I was thinking like Muldrotha and Sidisi both have strong self-mill components. Mm -hmm. For Sidisi, it is a little bit of a pain because you don't like cutting creatures for non-creatures, but I think that the fact that this is also milling you and potentially getting you zombie tokens may help out a bit. And then Muldrotha is just yeah. like so much self-mill, playing a lot of stuff out of graveyard. You're always limited by your mana in Muldrotha and you always have a ton of cards in graveyard. I think this is an interesting tool for a lot of these Sultai lists. We're on to the next card, the Ozolith. Is, am I saying that right? I read it as the Ozolith, Ozolith? but uh, okay. I, again... That like, makes a little more sense. Well, who knows? Until they like release pronunciation guides, we're all just guessing here. Well, I'm going to go with Ozolith because it sounds more sci-fi, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but the Ozolith is a one-mana legendary artifact. Whenever a creature you control leaves the battlefield, if it had counters on it, place those counters on the Ozolith. At the beginning of combat on your turn, if the Ozolith has counters on it, you may move all counters from it onto target creature. One of the problems with plus one plus one counters lists is that you get wrathed and your counters go away <laughs> and then you have to build up again. Being able to stack them all onto this stupid little rock right here, that's pretty good. Like, There's a lot of decks that kind of want that. Azuri, Clav, Progress, you should Wrath pretty often if you can because that gets really out of hand really quickly. Animar, Soul of Elements, uh, you play Animar again, enter combat, put all those counters back on Animar, and all of a sudden your spells are just as free as they were before. There's discussion about Skullbriar. There's been a lot of discussion about Skullbriar because of all these new counters. Matt Tayback on Twitter stated that Skullbriar will keep its counters and you get to put them on the what? Ozolith. What? Yep, double counters. Sounds very strong. Well, there you go. So Ozolith, very good in Skullbriar. All right, next we've got a very spicy cycle. These are the Triomes. Savai Triome, Ketria Triome... Indatha Triome, Raugrin Triome, and Zagoth Triome. They are all lands with three basic land types corresponding to the wedges. They enter the battlefield tapped, and they all have cycling for three. How do you feel about this cycle of lands? I am glad they exist. I think more cycling lands is good. I think more lands with basic land types is good. I'm kind of sad we didn't get the conclusion to the like Amonkhet cycling cycle. Instead, that would have been the enemy colored cycling lands with basic land types. Those would have gone into more decks in general for the format. I think it just would have been better for the format. So I'm happy in some regards that these exist. I'm just sad that they're so restrictive and like only so many decks are going to be playing these. If your three color deck is currently running the tri lands from Cons of Tarkir, 
this is an easy swap. If you're not currently running them, I still kind of like these cards. I know that Enters the Battlefield tapped lands. Nobody really loves that, but because there's nine different fetches you can run to get these, you don't have to like fetch them out immediately. There's always going to be some point in the game where you can spare like a single mana to get one of these into play tapped, and then like you have great fixing from that point onwards. And of course, you can get rid of them if they're ever not useful. Definitely better than the cons lands, but uh, I just wish it was something else. <laughs> At least they'll be cheap. They'll remain pretty inexpensive over the years. Oh yeah, the Amonkhet cycling lands are currently like less than a dollar each, and these go into far fewer decks. I would be very surprised if they ended up more expensive than those when they rotate out of standard. So we have one more land. Um, This is Bonders Enclave. It taps for a colorless, and it has three, tap, draw a card, activate this ability only if you control a creature with power four or greater. In case you were wondering, there's around 400 commanders that have power four or greater that can run this card. If you're in a color identity that is, like, hurting for card draw, this is going to be a pretty easy include, I would feel. goes in pretty much all the Eldrazi Titans, just because it's colorless land and it doesn't suck. And then, like, Boros and, like, Red and White are going to have a great time with this because they really, they just need that, that extra oomph. The the harder part is that you're spending basic like basically you're paying four to draw a card. Tap this and three other lands to draw a card. I think it compares pretty well to like uh, I've been playing Arch of Orozco a lot. I think it looks a lot better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't do anything immediately when you play it most of the time and costs a little bit more and uh, just isn't really seeing that much play. Do you have any final thoughts on Ikoria? How do you feel about the set overall? All things like said and done, like seeing the whole set and seeing seeing Mutate and stuff like that, I'm a lot more okay with the Mutate commanders. I really do like Mutate as a mechanic, and, and I would say that kind of overall, I really like the set as a whole, um, but I still, I still just really don't like these aesthetics. I'm not super into the nightmare cat beasts and the elemental helion horrors and the bird serpents and i know that there's like a place for that and it magic doesn't need to like never do that i'm just not super into it but just looking at card boxes like there's a ton of cards in this set that i'm actually really excited to play with and not all of them are mythics like it's a lot of like commons and uncommons and I think the fact that, like, there's two mythic cycles of commanders, of legendary creatures, I think that really shows the times we're in. And I just never would have expected that a few years ago. This set kind of shows, like, a pushing of mechanical boundaries that I'm, I'm really happy about, and also shows the thought patterns of wizards, I think, moving forward. I'm into it. I'm excited to get to play with these cards. I would echo a lot of the things you just said. I think it's great that they committed... 10 mythic slots to multicolor legendary creatures that's sweet while i don't care that much about mutate as a mechanic because it is pretty much just card disadvantage i thought that they executed on the mutate commanders really intelligently because like basically four of them you're okay with only mutating them once yeah exactly <laughs> like with the teamer uh, the teamer legendary creature, you're okay with 
just getting it once and that's enough for you to win the game. And same with Nethroy, the Abzon one. Both of them are, mm -hmm. are powerful enough that you don't care if you're not farming Mutate. And then the Sultai and Mardu ones, they're basically just Voltron decks. And so you're okay if you're only mutating at once because like the resulting creature you have is so powerful it can win you the game. It's only the Jeskai mm -hmm. trying to mutate multiple times. But even then, you're not forced to run other mutate cards. You just have access to bounce engines that you can utilize to get the mutation going. Yeah. I think the hit rate on commanders for this set was very, very high. I like the focus on some of the creature types. I agree with you that I don't like the, the goofy cat, ape, nightmare squirrel type of stuff. But just bringing back dinosaurs feels appropriate, and it's giving a lot of juice to older mm -hmm. tribal commanders. Like Gishath really, really hates drawing his dinosaurs because most of them are so terrible but oh, yeah. this set this set introduced a bunch yes. of dinosaurs that have cycling so you can cycle them away if you draw them but they're still good to hit off of gishath's trigger and i think that that'll really bolster the deck um also like beasts a lot of good beasts in this set if we ever get a beast commander i feel huh? like it's soon I feel like they're, they're hinting. It, they they gotta like do gonna it soon, at some right? point. Like it's gotta it's, be. It has to happen. But if they ever pull <laughs> the trigger on that, then this set will contribute a lot to it. Cats, you know, there's a, a handful of cats that are going to make it into Arabo, including a cat companion. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I, I like the focus on creature types. I, I was pleased with that. And when it comes to like the, the goofy combinations, the whale-wolf type of stuff, I just view that as like the pendulum swinging. Magic tries to give a little bit of something for everyone, and I'm okay with like having this one set where the tone is very goofy and it's a lot of like Sharknado type jokes, and like the type line is basically a punchline. I'm okay with all of that <laughs> because what I am trusting is that wizards when the time comes, will swing the pendulum in the other direction and give me the stuff that I really like. Eldritch Moon, for example, was a set that I loved. The tone was like incredibly dark. It was very disgusting, very dismal. You know, all the like emerge <laughs> and meld, like people like combining bodies and like monsters erupting out of your corpse. This hideous stuff. Like I was 100% on board for all of that, but there was a like you know, a significant portion of the audience, and Mark Rosewater has talked about this, that didn't connect with that, that thought it was too disturbing, that thought it was too dark. And I like that Wizards is able to, like, do things that will please me and not please the audience that likes Nightmare Squirrels. I'm willing to make a trade-off occasionally, and I'm really expecting that when we finally return to the new Phyrexia storyline, it's going to be the pitch-black tone that the setting deserves. And it's made possible because they are able to like temporarily alienate people in order to please the other audience at a later date. The final part of every set review we do is to compare our predictions for the top 10 cards from the last set to what actually ends up being in the top 10 on EDH Rec. The last set review we did was for Theros Beyond Death, and I'm going to quickly read out our top 10 predicted cards from that set. My list was Heliod's Intervention, Dryad of the Elysian Grove, Cetessen Champion, Nyx Bloom Ancient, Nyx Lotus, Wave Break Hippocamp, Thassa's Oracle, Nylea's Intervention, 
Gravebreaker Lamia, and Underworld Breach. My order was slightly different, but the difference was I didn't have Nylea's intervention. I had Elspeth Conquers Death. Okay, let's see how we did. Number one most adopted card on EDH Rec from Theros Beyond Death is Dryad of the Elysian Grove. Next is Thassa's Oracle, followed by Nyx Bloom Ancient, Underworld Breach, and Heliod's Intervention. I borked the order, but the top five on EDH Rec are all in my top ten. Yep. So that's solid. Let's let's keep going. Next is Thassa Deep Dwelling which I unfortunately don't have on my list. Calyx, Destiny's Hand, the enchantment-friendly planeswalker from the set. Shadow Spear, Destiny Spinner, and Athreos Shroud Veiled, making up the bottom half of the top 10 over on EDH Rec. None of those are present in my list. You didn't get... I also did not get any of those. And also, this was, if you remember listening back, this was the final set review for Theros. We had Charlotte Sable on. Uh, hers were Ox of Agonis, Thassa's Oracle, Erebos, Heliod, Nyx Bloom Ancient, Nyx Lotus, Dryad of Elysian Grove, Kiora Best the Sea God, Grave Baker Lamia, uh, and she said the Omen Cycle. She's got four out of five, so she was also pretty close. Looks like if you go down the list a little bit, Number 13 and 14 on the list are Satessan Champion and Nyx Lotus, yes. uh, which were on my top 10. So I'll give myself partial credit for those. But the other cards I mentioned don't show up until later on. Like Nylia's Intervention looks to be number 20 yes. out of the top cards in the set. Um, yeah. But uh, overall, how do you think we did? for predicting the most popular cards out of Theros Beyond Death? I think pretty well. I think the cards that we were super high on were super high. Like, I think the the top five cards were pretty easy standouts, honestly, for me, at least. Let's let's talk about our predictions for Ikoria. My number one is Luminous Broodmoth. I think that card is just going to see a ton of play. Heartless Act, The Kill Spell, Migration's Path, Eerie Ultimatum, Ruinous Ultimatum, Extinction Event, Ominous Seas, Dranith Magistrate, uh, I'm going to say Colossification, and Fiend Artisan. Fiend Artisan, I feel like, is going to see adoption in a lot of green-black decks. For the most part, me and Nick are going to differ on a decent amount of these, I think. The card I think will be adopted most is Migration Path. So this is essentially Explosive Vegetation with Cycling. And Explosive Vegetation currently is played in 29,000 decks on EDH Rec. It's strictly better than Explosive Vegetation, so I think it's going to see a lot of adoption. At the very least, people should be switching out. I don't know if they actually will. Next card is Heartless Act. I think it's just better than a lot of the Doomblade variants that people are playing. Doomplay is in 9,000 decks on EDH Rec. Next is Reconnaissance Mission. It's the, the Coastal Piracy with Cycling. So Bident of Thassa currently sees play in 15,000 decks on EDH Rec. So I think that this is an easy card to adopt for those decks that are interested in that type of effect. Next is Shark Typhoon. So this is the thing that makes sharks when you cast non-creature spells. This card, not only is it powerful, uh, not only it also has some meme potential because it is yeah. <laughs> the Sharknado, yeah. I think a lot of people like this card. I think a lot of people will put this into their decks. And so I'm expecting it to see a lot of adoption. 
Next is Fiend Artisan. I agree with you. I think a lot of black-green decks are going to want to run this card. So I, I would expect it to see a lot of adoption, even though it being multicolor makes it less likely to fit into a lot of decks. I also have on my list Luminous Broodmoth. It's a combo piece. It's a value engine. The main thing that's going to be holding it back is potential price tag, but we'll see how that goes. Oh, that's true. I didn't actually think about that. Vivian Monsters Advocate is next. I think this is another one that, because it's a mythic rare, because it's a planeswalker, because it may see some standard play, I think the price tag is going to hold it back a little bit. But it's a very powerful card. I think a lot of green decks would happily run it. It just offers a ton of value. It protects itself pretty well. And it lets you tutor through your deck. Next I have Wilt, which is the Naturalize with Cycling. Naturalize doesn't see a ton of play because there's so many better options in green. But I still think that the people who are running Naturalize should probably just switch over to this if they didn't already switch over to Return to Nature. And I think it has a decent chance of seeing some adoption in Commander. Next is Dire Tactics. So this is a powerful spot removal spell. The biggest problem for it is the fact that it's two colors and the fact that it's not that much better than the next best option. If you're playing a white-black deck that has some humans in it, this card is not going to be a ton better than like the next card down the line, which might be like a Victim of Night or something like that. It's just not an enormous upgrade, but it is a, a powerful card. It's a very good spot removal spell. And if you don't already have copies of Go for the Throat and English Unmaking and D-Spark and all the, the other spot removal spells that you would definitely want to be running in Commander, this could make it into your deck. Finally, the last card that I think we'll see some adoption is Dranith Magistrate, the little human hate bear that keeps your opponents from casting spells from places other than their hand. So this is notable for preventing people from casting spells from their command zone, so it could be a very effective hate bear in Commander if you get it down early. So those are my top 10. We'll see how it shakes out. We'll, we'll try to compare this to what actually ends up getting adopted once the set is a bit more mature and we're working on the next set review. Let us know what you think. Let us know your predictions for what cards are going to see the most adoption on EDHREC. All right, I want to give a brief thank you to our Patreon patrons. They are Bradley, Gustav, Ryan, Mark, Addison, Mason, Will, Rick, Laser, Raphael, Kyle, Charlotte, Andrew, Tom, The White Clays, Aubrey, Hannah, Anthony, Andy, Cooper, Dylan, James, Justin, Logan, Roger, David, Evan, Bryce, Dylan, Benjamin, Jason, Kyle, and Jerry. And we want to give a very special thank you to Alex Whiteclay. Yes. Uh, we've been uh, inundated with... He's been a huge help in providing some some of the excellent analysis you've heard on this episode, and we really appreciate his help to get through all of this hectic spoiler season. Yeah, we've been so busy, not just with cards, but just in general, and so like having his help has been amazing, so thank you very much. If any of you theorists want to get in touch with us, I am at Commander Theory on Twitter and Tumblr, and Zach is at Fat Bartleby on Twitter. Our theme song is Lincoln Continental by Entropy, and you can check them out on SoundCloud. Until next time, we're going back to the drawing board. <laughs>